this episode, Justice League International, number 22, from 1988. Welcome to the 22nd episode of Justice League International Wahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but guess what? I brought along a friend. Well, kind of a friend. Kind of this guy I know on the internet. Anyway, uh, in fact, each episode I invite a different guest host to help me tackle an issue of the JLI. My co-host today is another international guest. That's right, we're living up to our name, folks, Justice League International. Previously, we featured guests from North America. This time, we're jumping over and upside down to another continent entirely. Our guest today hails from the mythical land of kangaroos and Mick Dundee. He's at the epicenter of DC's invasion crossover, and he had to wait so long for the Doom Patrol that DC felt guilty and rewarded his patience with an ongoing comic book and a television series. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. Paul Hicks. Welcome to the Embassy, Paul. Thanks for being here. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's fantastic to be here. I'm a massive fan of the show. I've, I've listened to every single episode. I just love it. But um, where's Rob? Uh, <laughs> we're 22 episodes in, and he hasn't made an appearance yet, has he? Um, maybe by design? Oh, I'm not sure. He'll show up around issue 30-something, I believe, is uh, the plan for that. There's some guy who talks to fish in some of those issues. Oh, wow. Okay. That's something to look forward to. Anyway, you're stuck with me for now. Well, I appreciate You know, you and I, we've known each other online now for, oh my gosh, uh, eight or nine years, probably six, six, seven years, somewhere in that range. Quite a while. Quite a while. And I had been so looking forward to recording with you. We set this up over, I think, two years ago is when we scheduled this thing. And then Before you, the show yeah. started, I fished. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I knew I wanted you on the Invasion episodes because, I mean, come on, it happened in your backyard. And then you invited me to be on your DC OCD show where we talked about Eclipse of the Darkness Within. That was a hoot. I really enjoyed that. Thank you for having me on, even if you guys did screw up the recording. <laughs> oh, we fixed it. We fi- did you hear the uh, the fixed up trailer I did for you? Actually, I never have. There you go, folks. Because every time I download the episode, it downloads the same stupid version. I don't understand why. It's my phone remembering the old version. So, folks, if you want to hear a altered version of the JLI trailer, which even I haven't heard yet, check out uh, DC OCD, the Eclipse of Darkness Within uh, episode, and you know maybe I'll just listen to it on my computer if I really want to hear it. <laughs> it's worth it. I I could put it uh, out there for everybody in the folders so everyone can use it. Oh, that um, would be fantastic. I'm sure it's a whole lot of, crikey, the Justice League! <laughs> ah, you'll have to hear. So our first guest from Australia, the continent where everything tries to kill you. So how's that? I mean, you've made it this far in life. That's pretty impressive. Do you just, like, stay in your house all the time? Well, no, death's a part of life. And, uh, you know, I kill my fair share of things. So, so. <laughs> Mike, we miss you. <laughs> Well, before you incriminate yourself any further, perhaps we should get to the InSoc Trades recommendations, because Interpol listens very closely to this show, and I don't want to get you in any trouble. Uh, I mean, you're already living in a country of criminals and murderers that have been exiled, but I suppose it could get worse. You probably have prisons there, too, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> folks, this, I'm so nice to the guests. Uh, folks, this episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off, with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, 
each episode, we select a uh, collected edition of some sort from their library in stock trades, and usually it's tied to that month's issue of JLI in some way, shape, or form. Now, uh, let me ask you, Paul, did you happen to bring in stock trades pick? Because you, you've mentioned you listen to the show, but you've come from a country of liars and thieves, so I don't know if I should believe you or not. Uh, the way it normally works is the guests, or at least the cool guests, bring in stock trades recommendation. Did you happen to bring one? If not, it's okay. Kind of, sort of, but, you know, whatever. You ruin the streak or whatever. But did you happen to bring one? You can count me with the cool kids because I've, I've done my duty. I've, you know, I've done the legwork. I've done the hard yards. Fantastic. Well, why don't you tell the folks at home what you'd like to recommend? All right. I'm recommending a JLA trade paperback volume two, which is from the Grant Morrison run. And the artist on that is Howard Porter. And there's a bit of Gary Frank in there. And there's a few other people. But I'm recommending this basically because it has a thematic similarity to the comic we're going to talk about today, which is the JLA headquarters being invaded by oh. an intruder. So uh, in this one, it's Prometheus who uh, is tricking the JLA and taking them out one by one. And uh, yeah, it's a good little comic and it's actually uh, sandwiched along with a really fantastic story called Rock of Ages. So come and get that. And uh, and it's also got JLA Wildcats in it, which is um, just to give some tonal variance in quality. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good book. It's twenty four ninety nine, but if you order it from in-stock trades, the price is $14.49, and you save 42%, as long as you're not in Australia and you get it posted over here, in which case all the savings will be eaten by postage. Ouch. Wow. Well, on behalf of my entire country and in-stock trades, we apologize for the shipping troubles you guys uh, suffer down there. You go, you've go, gone through enough. You don't need to uh, bear that cross. All right, my pick is Wonder Woman by George Perez, Trade Paperback Volume 3, which has a very direct tie to this issue. So as you may be familiar with the George Perez era of Wonder Woman. This collects issues 25 through 35. Specifically, the reason I picked it, though, is because this issue includes Wonder Woman number 25, which was an invasion tie-in and directly picks up with this issue. In fact, we're going to get to it a little bit later, but uh, half the story takes place in JLI, half the story takes place in Wonder Woman. And uh, also, the cover of this trade paperback is the cover of issue number 25, drawn by George Perez, which includes Wonder Woman, Guy Gardner, and Rocket Red. It's a pretty sweet image. So you check that out. Again, Wonder Woman by George Perez, trade paperback volume 3. Normally retails for twenty nine ninety nine, but you can get her for forty two percent off right now in Insight Trades. It's only seventeen dollars and thirty nine cents. Well, folks, for these and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Okay, folks, go out to the social medias and find us. We are Justice League International, Bahaha Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, it's uh, JLI Podcast. Use our hashtag PoundFWPodcast because, folks, we want you to be part of this discussion. I want to hear your thoughts on Justice League. I want to hear your thoughts on Kevin McGuire coming back. I want to hear your thoughts on Invasion. I want to hear your thoughts about poor Paul and the, and the trauma of being at the epicenter Invasion meant for him and his family. I want to hear about this stuff. Crack some jokes at Paul's expense. It seems to be what everyone's doing nowadays. So, And really, it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. So we want to hear from you. Speaking of poor Paul and the misery that he lives in, we're going to have a quick chat with our guest. Paul, what is your own personal origin story with the JLI? How did you discover the book? And uh, what made you fall in love with it? Well, I got into comics as an adult, which makes me probably different to every single other person who you've ever talked to in your life who's into <laughs> comics. My mum would not let me get any interesting comics when I was a kid, so I used to get uh, Donald Ducks and things like that. But uh, as soon as I had my own money and uh, my own job, I uh, found a comic store in the city um, and started going in there and buying comics. So um, before that, I was mostly into Doctor Who stuff, but you can't relate to that. Um <laughs> 
<laughs> so wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's back up a moment. Not the Doctor Who stuff, because I could talk about that for hours. But so you're, you're an adult. You're all grown up, uh, or as grown up <laughs> as a Paul Hicks can get. And I'm an adult technically, but yeah, that's there you not go. grown legally, up. Yeah, legally, yeah. Uh, which is like age twelve in Australia, I think. But anyway, you <laughs> you you make a conscious decision to just start buying comics. I mean, what was the impetus that made you go? I have my own money. I'm going to go buy funny, you know, four color funny bit books. Um, a lot of it comes back to just being denied. So, you know, there was things I, I wanted to read as a kid and I thought, well, I can do that now. And I was already, you know, frequenting these shops to buy Starburst and Starlog and things like that and, uh, Doctor Who Monthly. So, you know, comics are there and they look cool and, you know, I sort of, I just started sampling what was around at the time and I tried lots of Marvel books and I became a DC fan. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so, so your mom probably didn't let you wrestle crocodiles either. Did you go out and start doing that? <laughs> no, that's up north. We don't live near the crocodiles. We live near all the snakes. So. Oh, lovely. Okay. <laughs> so you're in the comic book shop. How did you find JLI? What made you fall in love? Well, I had enough money to sort of try most things. And I think I somewhere I, somewhere between Millennium and Invasion, I started um, trying DC books. And I found that most of the Marvel books were on issue like 200 and something. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the DC issues were like in the teens. Okay. Um, so it's kind of easy to go back and to the start of things. But I remember I got some JLI. And I remember getting the issues to do with Millennium, and I read Millennium, but amazingly, I kept reading comics. Um, <laughs> and then I got issues to do with Invasion, and, and somewhere around there, I became a full-time collector. But I couldn't get the original JLI issues. But I think it wasn't too long after this, a trade paperback came out. And the first JLI issue that I'd been – the earliest that I'd been able to find with was issue eight. And then this trade came out, which had one to seven in it, and I had everything then. I was set. And, yeah, bought a lot of DC and – kind of done it most of my life since so okay yeah that new beginning trade paperback really was a lifesaver for me too because uh when i start, i didn't start till much later i didn't start till jla 42 i got in way late and i couldn't find those early issues either so that yeah jla a new beginning trade that came out you know was late 80s early 90s i don't know i've got it right here but it was a lifesaver because like oh this is how it all came together that's very cool yeah, there weren't many trades back then, so it was like uh, Death of the Family was an early one that I got because those Batman issues were a dickens to find. Yeah, what a, there wasn't much. Dark Knight Returns and Year One, I think. They were the, some of the earliest trades you could get, and I got them. <laughs> so, uh, interesting. You heard it here, folks, that rebooting your series to issue number one makes it more accessible to readers. So, I really hope that catches on as a trend, but I doubt it will. <laughs> I mean, Crisis on Infinite Earths is pretty much as far back as I go in my comic collecting, so uh, there's a few things that sneak in before that like Swamp Thing but yeah mostly that's the other side of the wall to me and it's quite scary that I'm finding out I have more in common with Paul Hicks uh, I'm kind of the same way I, I have certainly have tons of pre-crisis comics but my love doesn't start till crisis so interesting and Doctor Who who knew that two people on the other side of the world one man sitting in the summer and one man sitting in the winter it snowed at Paul's house today we have so much in common Paul we're like lost souls coming together I feel it happening for us oh, we could be mortal enemies it could go either way oh I, I'm liking that much better let's do that let's do that <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, 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 good. Perfect. All right. So who are your favorite JLI characters? Now, I don't know how math works in Australia, but here in the United States, we do like a one, two, three kind of thing, what you might call new math. So if you could keep it to three or less, that would be nice. None of the guests seem to know how to do that. Let's see how you do. A few days ago, I thought about this and I, get, I, I wrote down three names and looking at it now, I don't even know if I agree with them myself. So, <laughs> um, but all right, let's go with uh, Ted Court, the Blue Beetle. Nice. Um, 
really good characters. Um, you know, solid morality. He had some really good stories built around him over the years. Um, nothing bad ever happened to him in the 2000s, so that's good. Um, <laughs> solid morality. I like that. Okay. <laughs> you know, he contends with a lot of, you know, personal deficiencies and overcomes them. So, okay. All right. you know, not many heroes do that. And, you know, he had the whole battling his weight and everything. And he became the butt of jokes for a long time, but he recovered from that. And uh, I think he's a, a, a good character uh, who endures today. I mean, you can, you can see him on uh, D-Clot being played by uh, Brandon Ralph. That's right, by much. Superman, yeah. Yeah, even though they call him the Atom, that's uh, Blue Beetle to me on that show. <laughs> and apart from that, I, I really like um, Ice Maiden or Ice or Tora, as she's known, or okay. and I'm not going to say her surname because that's tricky. Um, <laughs> but with that character, I feel like uh, what I like about her is, uh, I guess, her potential because it's still there, unrealized all this time. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like she's a character who could be a really good leading lady of her own comic if someone would put in the time to work out what makes her tick and you know work on that you know but I mean she's been killed she came back I, she's been in the future I don't know where she's at really nowadays with the DC Universe but yeah, at least we have the JLI books I did like it when she would get you know angry and exert you know incredible power I didn't like it when she became evil and exerted incredible power but I, I like that she had all this power just at her fingertips and chose not to use it or you know didn't get angry enough to use it that's something to think about with a character she gets a nice moment with her power in this issue, which is great. And um, yeah. if, if you want to read a really interesting version of uh, of Ice, yeah, you, you sort of hinted at the Justice League 3000 series has a version of her where she's been, you know, basically uh, the queen of a, of a of a realm for hundreds or if not thousands of years, and it's, it's a very strong version of Ice, so that's, that was nice to see her. And that was still, that was Giffen and Dimiteus writing it, too. Yeah, and third character. Oh, five. You said five? Sure, sure. Represent your entire country at this moment, and go ahead and do that. <laughs> Uh, well, I'll say Rex Mason, just because, uh, yeah, I just love his visuals. And he was great in Justice League Europe, wasn't he? He really was. Yeah. And I don't think he's been great since then. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, but, well, uh, we, we just did some Doom Patrols written by John Byrne, which uh, had Metamorpho in them, and they are terrible comics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it's Metamorpho's fault, I think. <laughs> no, there's something else going on there. But I, I, I just like his ability to turn into things, and I like the fact that he doesn't have the I'm a sad monster personality. He's got the, um, you know, I'm a working stiff trying to do my best, and, you know, sort of, it kind of reminds me a bit of Hellboy, and I think Hellboy perfected that sort of character uh, characterization, and uh, went a long way with it. So, uh, you know, that's the way I prefer Rex Mason to be um, just someone who soldiers on and does his best but, and doesn't dwell on the negatives. I'm really glad you mentioned him. I'm not sure if many people have picked any uh, Justice League Europe characters yet as their favorites. And he is perfect. Yeah, your description of him is, like, is dead on. And that's what makes him so lovable. You, you just, you love the guy. You know his life is in shambles outside of the team. But as you said, he soldiers on and his powers are fascinating what they can do with him. Uh, and now JLI is a very character-driven book, so you don't see him get to use his powers as much as you might in other books. But, uh, yeah, good choice. Great character, too. Well done, sir. Oh, and, thank you. and you kept it to three. I think you might be the first person in the history of the show to pull that off. So, well done, Australia. Congratulations to all of you. Shall I just discard these other pages that I wrote? Yes, that'd be for the best of everyone's interest. Yes. Okay. okay. All right. Well, with Paul being a success in the last segment, which really, quite frankly, surprised all of us, we're going to move on to one of our segments that we only have for a few more episodes. It is... Monitor Duty. 
This is where we talk about comic books on the shelves the same month as this JLI issue. Now, this issue of JLI was on sale October 11th, 1988, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that. So we're going to talk about other comics featuring JLI members on sale in October 1988. First one up is Cosmic Odyssey number 4 by Jim Starlin and Mike Mignola. Now, we've been mentioning this one for the last three months. I can't believe how perfect this worked out to have Paul Hicks on this episode, because I'm going to tell you a little bit about this series. It's an epic conclusion featuring Batman, Marsh Manhunter, Dr. Fate, uh, Darkseid, all these folks, and includes the future JLI members Orion and Light Ray, and it was recently covered in complete error on the DC OCD podcast from our buddies Mike and some other guy named Paul, I don't know who that is, from the Waiting for Doom podcast, those guys. And I have no idea who they are, but they were crazy for including Cosmic Odyssey in their crossover coverage because it wasn't a crossover. Hey, hey, hey. When it's your own show, you can do what you want. Like, I, uh, I how am. long since you've, how long since you've actually talked about Firestorm on your Firestorm podcast, mate? You're breaking up. You're breaking up. I can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> we did talk about Aquaman recently on our Aquaman and Firestorm podcast. That had to count for something. <laughs> <laughs> it was a weird aberration. I'm not sure what's going on. Why don't you tell us about the next comic while I conveniently dodge that question? <laughs> uh, Secret Origins 35 which is from the Secret Origin series. So, so they did three issues in a row about JLI members, and they had a triptych cover, which means uh, three covers that fit together for people who don't know the word triptych. In this one, they had a story about Booster Gold by Dan Jurgens, the creative Booster Gold. They had a Martian Manhunter story by Mark Verheiden and Ken Stacy, and um, that's probably the best story in all of Secret Origins, and um, that one got reprinted in the Secret Origins trade. And uh, sorry, and I, I think uh, Darwin Cook would have drawn on that one for his characterization of the Martian Manhunter in DC The New Frontier so if I remember correctly and uh, there's also the Maxwell Lord Origin by Keith Giffen um, and Robert Lauren Fleming with art by Eduardo Barreto and that one I can't remember at all but if you would like to refresh your memory about the Secret Origins there was a podcast uh, a long long time ago was it on the Fire and Water Network? I think it was. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. And it was hosted by Brian Daly, I believe. Um, right. Brian, Brian Daly is his name. That's exactly. He doesn't listen to the show anyway, so don't worry. He won't even hear the joke. Yeah. Excellent. Um, <laughs> yeah. So check that out. And if you listen to the one of the eps uh, before or after that, I'm on it, which makes it four times as good. At least that's what your mom thinks. Go ahead. <laughs> um, uh, next up, we t- we've got a comic called Invasion, which is um, at a DC event, which um, I have a special affinity for DC events. I, I love DC events. They're, they're bigger stories about the DC universe than normal stories. And this one was like all the a- aliens attack uh, Earth and try and wipe out the superheroes, or do they? And it's tied in directly to this issue, which is weird because they come out in the same month. So <laughs> who could see that coming? You said you have an affinity for events. I thought it was a psychosis uh, if, I <laughs> the, if I listen to the trailers correctly. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, that, that's a good trailer. I like the fact that Mike can't hold the accent all the way through. Um, <laughs> Speaking of accents, I do want to compliment you. I mean, you guys realize that English is not Paul's first language. Australian is. So I think he's doing a great job here today. So hats off to you, sir. Well done. Uh, thanks. I, actually, for those of you who don't know, this is what the absence of an accent sounds like. So everyone else in the world has accents except for Australians. So, <laughs> But you guys all wear the funny hat. <laughs> anyway, if you want to know more about DC's Invasion, you can listen to my show, which is awesome. We did the episode a few uh, eps ago. Or, but there's another podcast uh, called uh, First Strike Invasion Podcast. It's on the Fire and Water Network, and it is... Uh, hosted by past guests of the show, Siskoid, along with his buddy Bass, or Bass. No, it's Bass. 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 That's okay. He listens to this show, so he'll only be offended by you. Way to go. Great. Now Canada and Australia are going to go to war. Lovely. <laughs> you guys are going to throw a 
maple syrup and boomerangs at each other. Should be beautiful. Well, we ain't got guns, so there we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Also on the shelves was the aforementioned one row number 25 by George Perez and Chris Marinin. Again, another Invasion tie-in. We've talked a little bit about it already, but this issue tells the story of how Wonder Woman, Guy Gardner, and Rocket Red save Diana's friend, Etta Candy. And for more on Wonder Woman, though not necessarily this era of Wonder Woman, uh, check out the Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast by our friend Diablo Frank, who's also a past guest of the show. Now, into the Bat Corner, or the Gotham Corner, if you will. It's only two books in 1988, but boy, it'll grow next year for some strange reason. Uh, Batman number 428 by Jim Starlin and Jim Aparo was on the shelves, which is Death in the Family Part 3. This is it, folks. This is the issue where Jason Todd dies. Sorry, spoiler. Uh, he was murdered by and a bunch of empowered teenagers with 95 cents in their hand. So uh, so sad that Jason died and never, ever, 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 ever was seen again. We, we miss you, Jason. We do. And for more on people who voted to murder Jason Todd, please see Rob Kelly, my podcasting life partner. Ah, and also in the same month, there was Detective Comics 594, which is by John Wagner and Alan Grant in the celebrated Norm Freakin' Break of Fogel period of Batman. Uh, and in this one, uh, Batman chases down a drugged-up currency broker, and it's... Uh, I can't remember a damn thing about this comic. I have probably read it about eight times in my life, and I look at the cover and I just think, I think this is an issue before it gets really good with some weird characters, but I think... I mean, uh, maybe this uh, drugged-out Currency Broker was influenced by a villain who's coming up or something, but uh, I can't remember it very well. And I, I bought the hardcover with it recently, the Norm Brayfogle hardcover. Anyway, mm. but if you want to know more about Batman from this time period, uh, check out the network's Batman Nightcast by Chris Franklin and Brian Daly. So, yes. um both have been on this show. Now, I know that so. issue, uh, you and I talked off air, does include uh, Joe Potato, that issue of uh, Detective. And yeah, the, the celebrated first appearance of Joe Potato. Thank you very much. And then I do... Uh, and, and like you sort of mentioned, this is this is a period that I'm just not very familiar with because I didn't start reading until just an issue or two later is when I started reading this era of Detective. So it's, it's still outside of my knowledge. It's a good period. I, I, I can't remember this issue, so I'm not going to speak with any authority on this one. But Joe Potato was a, a sort of Gotham City detective, um, private detective, not public detective. Um, and he, he worked with Batman on and off a few times. And uh, he was probably so successful that he actually got a who's who entry. That's the whole reason I remember him. <laughs> you can look forward to Rob going, who's this? Right. Do that one. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, and around the same time, we had Captain Adam 23, which is disappointingly not the invasion issue. It's the one before that. So uh, Captain Adam is faced with a ghost from the past. Ooh, scary ghost. It's written by Carrie Bates, uh, with art by Greg Weissman and Pat Broderick, who I saw at Heroes Gone. Did you know I went to Heroes Gone? Um, did know you came to my country and made sure to go to an event that I wasn't at, so well planned, sir. Well, you had enough time to avoid me, so I couldn't help that. Uh, if you want to know more about Captain Adam, uh, check out Jay Jones's coverage on the Silver and Gold podcast and the Splitting Adams blog. And Jay, like everyone at me is a past guest of the show. Don't worry, you're about to be a past guest because I'm going to hang up on you halfway through this episode. This uh, hasn't aired yet. <laughs> I, I recently read Captain Adam number 23 for a secret, shh, don't tell anyone project coming up for the JLI podcast. Uh -huh. uh, also, this is fun for me, brand new JLI series launched this same month. It was Dr. Fate number one. Love it so much by J.M. DiMatteis and Sean McManus. Now, this is the ongoing, not the miniseries, folks. So Eric and Linda Strauss are learning the ways of being Dr. Fate, but they also have to get used to their mentor, Naboo, who is now occupying the animated corpse of Kent Nelson. Creepy. And in this issue, they meet Petey the Demon. Oh, I love this series so much. Uh, I'm in the middle of rereading it myself. Just a glorious, glorious comic. James DiMatteis really explored some interesting themes. Sean McManus was at the absolute top of his game in this book. So happy to see 
seen in this list. Yeah, and that's Naboo where Princess Amidala came from, I believe. Yeah, that's that's dead on. Perfect. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Now, you uh, wanted to talk about that comic because you had a letter in it, I believe. Uh, well, I, I do have actually several letters printed in the Dr. Fee comic, but all after the J.M.D. Mateus era. In fact, my very first letter was uh, a follow-up to J.M.D. Mateus' last issue, number 24, and the editor foolishly printed me, which was you know made me like a junkie, so I was sending letters in every month. It got printed quite a few times, actually. I was just mentioning it. You didn't need to elaborate. Um, well, I, <laughs> I, know, I know a guy who's got a sick fascination with letter columns, so um, you know, I'm just saying it would be an interesting topic for someone to talk about sometime. <laughs> that guy sounds awesome. Who is that guy? <laughs> I don't know. He talks funny and wears a funny hat, though. Ah. <laughs> now, okay. uh, we've still got three months to go before Justice League Europe launches here, folks, but we figure it's time to start talking about some of those characters. Paul, when you lead us off. Okay, so Animal Man, number six. Uh, you can Animal say that. Man. How do you there you go. Yeah, thanks. Um, this was the Invasion crossover, and Animal Man was a fantastic series, one of the best things that Grant Morrison ever wrote. Um, and in this, Animal Man comes face-to-face with a Thanagarian artist bent on detonating a mysterious bomb, and the JLI's own Hawkman makes an appearance. Or does he? He does. And it's a great issue. It's got a fantastic Brian Boland cover, and it's a good story, and it holds up after all this time. And speaking of things that don't hold up, uh, Flash 20 by... <laughs> Mesna Lobes and Greg LaRock, which is another invasion crossover, and it sort of crossed over with the Manhunter, so the, uh, it's tying. I can't remember if this one comes before or after Manhunter number eight, but Flash ends up in Cuba, bumping into Fidel Castro, which is, uh, you know, pretty uh, culturally obvious, but there you go. <laughs> and the JLI's own Booster Gold and Oberon make an appearance, which I don't recall at all. Oh, he calls the embassy or something. Yeah, yeah that's I think pretty exciting. Cool. Real cameo kind of thing. It, it's exciting stuff, so don't miss that. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, uh, not a good period for The Flash. This was, uh, what do they call it on the Invasion post? The whiny Wally era. He had a lot of growing to do. He definitely, definitely did. But as far as, by the way, between that Manhunter issue, the John Ostrander Kim Yale series, which I absolutely love, it, the order to read, I think you could read either one in order, because basically they happen at the same time, if, I, if a memory serves, I think is how that works. Sort of like the Wonder Woman JLI issues we're going to cover. You don't actually have to read one before the other, because they both take place at the same time. They did a lot of that I, in Invasion, so it's nice. I don't have to read the JLI one? Now you tell me. Oh, well, sorry. Spoilers. Then I get to mention this little comic that I love so much, Firestorm the Nuclear Man, number 80. See, I told you I still talk about Firestorm, by uh, Bob Greenberger and Tom Grindberg. And this is one of the few issues Austin didn't write. And this is another Invasion crossover. In this one, Power Girl guest stars along with Starman, Easy Company, Firehawk, and Firestorm as they battle the Cahoons in the South Pacific. And like these other ones I was mentioning, crossovers, this one continues in Starman number 5 by Roger Stern and Tom Lyle as Power Girl and our heroes continue to battle the Cahoons. You can read both of those. And as again, as we've already mentioned, Wonder Woman number 25, you know, between Animal Man and Flash and Power Girl and Wonder Woman, it's almost as if they were trying to give these future Justice League Europe members some sort of exposure in the invasion event for some reason. Weird that, huh? Yeah, but Power Girl didn't have a boob window, so there wasn't that much exposure. Ah, That's where we're looking for the Australian class. Thanks so much for bringing that. (laughs) Basically, Uh. you just beat me to the joke. Okay, so, folks, while I'm reeling from Paul turning into either Beetle or Booster there, take your pick, uh, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we're going to cover Justice League International number 22. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. 
Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? <laughs> Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. <laughs> now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. <laughs> Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. Hello, Paul. Hello. I am Dr. Herfenstaffner. Come in, come in, please. Take a seat. Take a seat. What can I do for you today? I uh, just, I just, I'm, I can't sleep. I, I, I can't focus on anything. The only thing I can think about is like DC events. DC event, as in the comic books. DC events. Yes, yes, the comic book events. Ooh, interesting. Uh, are we we talking things like Crisis on Infinite Earths? Yeah, yeah, totally. That one, yeah. Uh, Infinite Crisis? Yeah, yeah, that one too. Oh, very, very. Invasion, maybe? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the, uh, the Genesis? Uh, not so much. No? Oh. Okay, well, I think it's really good if you talk about the things that are troubling you in your life. So, maybe you should do a podcast about this obsession. What? What, what do you call this obsession? What do you think it is? I think you're a unique case. I've not seen anything like this before in my office. I'm going to suggest that you have what we call DCOCD. What? DCOCD? You are obsessive and compulsive about your DC events. I think you should talk it out, get it out of your system via a podcast. I will help you, my friend. We shall do a podcast together about your DCOCD. Oh, okay. When I won't even start? charge you for it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I don't think I can claim you on benefits. <clears throat> yeah, it's good. <laughs> when shall we start? Um, I'll get back to you on that. I'll check my I'll check my timetable. <laughs> cool. All right, folks, we are back. And remember, if you can't seem to find your copy of Justice League International number 22, I'm sorry, I don't know what's wrong with you, why you can't keep up with things in life. It's just sad. It really is. You probably can't find the remote control for the television either. But you can go out to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI, and there you can see several images from this issue where we will touch upon them. I might even include the cover to Wonder Woman number 25 if you're lucky. We'll see how you're feeling with that one. But again, fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Here it is, folks. Justice League International number 22, published by D. DC Comics. Now, once again, there is no cover date, and for more details on that, we covered that exhaustively last episode, so I'm not going to go into that again. Cover price is 75 cents. Cover is by Kevin McGuire and Joe Rubenstein. Woo! Mr. McGuire is back. Paul, why don't you tell us about this cover? Well, it shows some wreckage, and it's in the JLI Embassy, just spoilers there, uh, but there's stuff everywhere, and the main image in the center is Oberon wearing combat pants and a uh, black singlet and uh, bullet band 
chandelier and holding an M16, and he's got a little red headband, and I think it's fair to say this is Channeling Rambo of the day. Yes, and he is surrounded by a decimated JLI headquarters, and in amongst it, a tiny little Kuns, or how do you, you say Kahuns? I say Kahuns. I, I, I bring out the H, but yeah, Kahuns. You're just trying to say it more carefully than me. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's kuns everywhere, and, yeah, they're all squished and stabbed, and there's one with a fork sticking out of him. Um, there's one crushed by a barbell. Yeah, so uh, it's reflective of what happens in the first half of this comic, it's fair to say. But, I mean, there's an interesting feature. The, he has these fatigues on his pants, and the JLI, the logo above, has the same fatigues on it. It's fun. It's absolutely uh, a hoot. Yeah, like you said, it's very representative of the issue. The only thing is uh, it's not is Oberon's certainly not wearing that in the issue. But, yes, it's, it's a perfect representation of Rambo. I, I absolutely love it. And being the bald head, because, you know, Rambo, of course, had a huge full head of hair, being the bald head just sets it off and makes it hilarious. So, and he's got that angry face on. And I do like one of the little guys who crushed by a bowling ball, uh, which cracks me up, too. And the cover says Oberon Unleashed. Other than that, yeah. you clearly were reading my notes, so uh, you've covered it all, sir. If you just, like, cover up everything in the picture except for Oberon's eyes and his uh, mouth, it's Wolverine. Oh, yeah, because he's got the lamb chops, too. Look at that, yeah. And uh, looking very aggressive. Well, would, would that be Wolverine from the uh, comics or Wolverine from the uh, Spider-Man is Amazing Friends where he was from Australia? <laughs> oh, I don't watch cartoons, man. I'm a grown-up. Oh, right. Of course. Of course. How silly of me. So, And, of course, the cover uh, carries the Invasion First Strike Extra logo on it, too. So, All right, let's get into the issue, folks. Plot and Breakdowns by Keith Giffen. Script by J.M.D. Mateus. Penciler Kevin McGuire is back. Oh, my gosh. Inker Joe Rubenstein. Letter Bob LePan. Colorist Gene D'Angelo. And Rocket Physicist. Is how Andy Helfer is identified the editor. The issue is called Little Murders. I'll kick us off. The issue opens on an interesting splash panel. It's a full page spread inside the New York Embassy of the JLI, and it's focusing on Maxwell Lord standing there looking very suave and casual. He's wearing a suit and holding a cigar, like he's posing for the cover of CEO magazine. Now, conversely, standing right next to him is Oberon, which is half his size, a bit pudgy, and looking kind of put out. This page screams, Kevin McGuire is back! I mean, he doesn't actually say that, but that's what, as you read it, that's the feeling you get. Max and Oberon's discussion gets the readers pretty much up to speed in what's going on with the Evasion crossover, and we discover the JLI team is in the South Pacific Islands to team up with Wonder Woman. Oberon verbally lusts after the beautiful brunette with the star-spangled chest. His words, not mine. Uh, and he regrets not being able to meet her in person. Although, technically, she's not star-spangled chest. It's star-spangled bottoms. She's got, like, uh, the W on her chest. Anyway... Throughout the conversation, though, jokes are peppered in about Oberon's height, or really his lack therein. So, foreshadowing. Um, now, we change venues to the destroyed remains of the Australian embassy, or as I like to call it, Paul's house. And uh, <laughs> poor Tasmanian devil has been subdued by the alien invaders. We don't see him on screen, but they do mention him. And there we find a collection of aliens, including Cahoons, Okarians, and Scions. And the aliens are planning to use the JLI teleporter and the preset coordinates. Their plan also somehow involves some captured impskins, which are the aliens with the ability to shrink. Hmm. Then back at the New York Embassy, Oberon is spending time trying to cheer up Booster Gold. Booster is pouting as he's stuck on monitor duty, but would much rather be with the JLI team fighting the aliens. After some funny and whiny moments, the teleporter tubes activate, and Booster wanders off to investigate, and Oberon is left behind to hear some odd noises, including zoff, 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 and then thud. These are noises that Oberon even takes the time to repeat out loud. Oberon investigates and finds Booster unconscious, and about half dozen alien 
and warriors brandishing laser guns. However, the interesting part is that the aliens are only about six inches tall. The aliens start shooting up the embassy and chasing Oberon. It's, uh, it's, it's actually quite hilarious, because in this battle, Oberon is essentially a giant compared to the bad guys, who are essentially Lilliputians. Oberon screams for Max's help, but Max is oblivious as he heads out the door on urgent matters, which quite possibly he's rendezvousing with the Captain Adam book, because that's where he spends much of his time during the invasion. And the little aliens, uh, they, they get the upper hand, because of their laser weapons, basically. And completely unarmed, Oberon uses whatever advantage he can find. He runs up a flight of stairs to slow down the tiny aliens, then he rolls a bowling ball down the stairs, hilariously smashing several of the aliens, and finally Oberon takes refuge in Beetle's bedroom. He remembers Beetle mentioning something important and begins tearing through the closet searching. He finds what he's looking for beneath Beetle's underwear, several dirty girly magazines, some baseball cards, some roller skates, and not a moment too soon as the aliens disintegrate the door and charge in at Oberon. Everyone's favorite sarcastic dwarf then whips around, brandishing Blue Beetle's BB gun. Uh, not like a BB gun like you shoot pellets with, but actually the, the gun Blue Beetle carried but never actually used in this series. Uh, Oberon aims and blasts the aliens with a blinding light flash, and it's too much for the tiny aliens as they all collapse unconsciously. Conscious. Oberon has single-handedly saved the embassy. Oberon then helps Booster Gold recover from being jumped by the aliens. Booster is suitably embarrassed, as it was his first chance to fight aliens, and he was knocked out in like three seconds. Booster asks Oberon what he did with the teeny tiny aliens, and Oberon reveals that he trapped all of them in roach motels. <laughs> the scene shifts to Fiji in the South Pacific, where Wonder Woman is meeting the entire non-confined-to-base members of the team, as well as the occasional associates Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Some of the team, namely Blue Beetle and Dimitri, are keen to meet Wonder Woman, and they're more keen than is entirely appropriate, whereas Fire and Ice are appalled by all the fawning. John is keen to focus on the task at hand, and Wonder Woman leads him to an embedded platoon commander who, whose job is to explain everything, and he explains that they need assistance in rescuing Wonder Woman's good friend, Etta Candy. Etta has valuable alien communications intel and that has made her a target of the advancing Cahoons and uh, the team needs to split in two to delay the rest of the arriving Cahoon forces while Wonder Woman and part of the team go and locate and rescue Etta. So Wonder Woman, Guy Gardner and Dimitri or Rocket Red fly off to uh, visit her tie-in issue while the rest of the group gather to hear John's plan. Hawkman and Beetle bicker, interestingly and Mr. Miracle tells John he's ready for his part and Katar and Shara or Hawkman and Hawkwoman leave for their task and the rest of the team readies themselves. We see a huge fleet of alien warcraft approaching the island. I counted there were 36. On one of the ships, the commander demands a report on a faulty airlock from his number two, known as number two. Number two reports that nothing is amiss, but soon he must ask the question, who does number two work for? Because number two... (laughs) As number two turns into John Johns and incapacitates the commander. John flies the ship away from the fleet, dumping the soldiers into the ocean, but some of the Armada are in hot pursuit. Beetle and Miracle come aboard clutching some device, and they come aboard via a boom tube. As the pursuing ships fire on John, they are in turn destroyed by the Hawks, who have lain in wait to ambush them with some sort of Thanagarian bazookas, it looks like. As the shields start to fail on the rogue craft, another Cahun ship closes, till it is smashed in half by the sudden appearance of a giant ice mountain, which has been generated by ice. Woo! Aboard the Cahun 
command vessel, they observe the fleeing ship headed back towards them. The commander concludes that they must be surrendering and orders his number two to bring them in alive so he can torture them. As they engage the tractor beam, number two observes that there are no life forms aboard and asks the commander if it's occurred to him that this may be a trap. The final word of the question coming just as a massive blast decimates their ship along with the entire fleet. Uh, we see the JLI members convening after setting the bomb and boom tubing away uh, from the Trojan ship and John observes although they won they had to take so many lives to do so. Later they are joined by Wonder Woman Guy and Dimitri who successfully completed their mission to rescue Etta in Wonder Woman's book. Away from the others Wonder Woman and John discuss the bleakness of taking enemy lives. Their somber silence is disrupted by Beetle arriving to tell them that they've all been summoned to a superhero summit in another comic which is Invasion Number 2 I believe. And that's what happened. All right, and then the next issue box says, In the aftermath of Invasion, the JLI faces the all-new Anti-Justice League, or something like that. They're still fighting over the name. (laughs) I like that. It's very appropriate and, and good for what the team ends up being. So, Paul, what did you think of this issue? This is one of the ones that I have a tremendous fondness for. But rereading it, it's really struck me that it is kind of light on the on the jokes. If you think the pinnacle of humor is ogling Wonder Woman, this is the comic for you because that's pretty <laughs> much what everyone does through it. Obron is bummed that he can't go and you know hang out with Wonder Woman, and then Booster Gold's upset that he's not going to meet Wonder Woman, and Blue Beetle he's excited that he is meeting Wonder Woman, and you know Dimitri's being very you know interested in her, and everyone's telling him to calm down, reminding him that he's married and you know fire and ice they're getting upset about wonder woman so that seems to be you know the main pitch of it really but i mean there's some really good stuff i mean i, I love the uh, home alone with oberon that's <laughs> uh, <laughs> like home alone eight at this point or whatever i'm not I think sure it, well yeah i mean that's what the colin mccalkin looks like now so yeah absolutely <laughs> uh, i want to before you go too far away i want to make one quick comment about everyone lusting after wonderman there was one person who specifically who wasn't which was guy gardner and he even said she made him sick so which is not explained to the jli issue but is explained to the wonder woman issue and we'll get to that towards the end when we talk about that so that was kind of surprising me for me for years i was like why has guy gardner got such a beef with her you think he'd be like lusting after her just like everybody else because he's i mean he's you know a complete you know sort of id creature so i figured he would totally be tongue wagging but no uh, well, Mr. Miracle isn't that interested in either, but, uh, you know, who would be if you're married to Big Barter? So. Right, exactly. So, yeah. Roman's a smaller version of his wife. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. But it struck me like we see the Australian Embassy of the Justice League International. It's in ruins, but uh, fortunately the teleportation tube still works. That really, I, I think this is in Canberra, if I remember from how they said it, it was invasion number one, because that was, they, uh, they struck Melbourne and Canberra. And I actually work in Canberra, which is um, one of the more interesting things about me, I, um, I'm sure you'll find. Um, so so is, did I misspeak when I said it, the the JLI embassy was your house? Is it actually where you work? Yeah, it would be where I work technically. So okay. yeah, basically Australia has two major cities that basically hate each other and fight. And because of that, our capital is in between them rather <laughs> than in either of them. So they couldn't, you know, get it together. So Melbourne and Sydney don't get on and Canberra is, you know, it's about two thirds of the way between them. And that's where I work. No Okay. Yeah, exciting place, Canberra. <laughs> Canberra, Canberra nightlife is uh, just a black picture. That's what. Uh, that's the old joke. <laughs> okay. All right. Very exciting. Very exciting. Yeah, I did like the tie into the Legion of Superheroes by having the Impskian technology being used on the uh, the Kuns, the Kuhuns. The... Let's talk about that. So okay. the Kuhuns, they shrink themselves down, right? To to as they break into the JLI embassy. Other than it's funny, why they never explain why they shrunk themselves down? Well, I think you took away the reason straight away. There, it's funny uh, that. <laughs> 
<laughs> Oberon, the shortest member of the team, is fighting people who are shorter than him. Yeah, I, I wondered why. I think the first time I read that, I was, you know, I was just dazzled by the comic and didn't wonder why. I don't know that I've ever wondered why until I had to prepare for this episode. <laughs> it's always been like, this is great! And then when, that's, that's the destructive nature of podcasting. It makes you rethink these issues. And you're like, what? 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 You know, and I can only guess maybe they thought it could be like a reconnaissance mission behind enemy lines and they thought it'd be easier being small, but that's me completely no prizing it. There's nothing in the comic to indicate that whatsoever. Uh, my theory is that perhaps if uh, they tried to send a full-grown Kahun through, the uh, teleportation tube would have stopped that. But uh, if you send through lots of small ones, it, they can get away with it because it won't detect them as a, a full-grown alien or something. So perhaps that's the reason. They didn't write it in the comic. Because they don't send Martian Manhunter through those tubes all the time as a full-grown alien. But anyway, all right. Yeah, who knows? I, one thing I wanted to point out, I, I love the sound effect Zoff, Zoff, Zoff. Um, <laughs> Keith Giffen made use of that in other comics. Like, I definitely remember seeing that in Vexed. Um, oh, and it geez. is, it is a funny sound effect. Zoff, zoff, zoff for a laser. Well, and Oberon actually speaks it out loud twice in the book. He's like, zoff, zoff, <laughs> zoff, thud. What was that? And then he says it again with the zoff, zoff, zoff. I like how they draw attention to that. Vexed. Wow, that's a deep cut, brother. Not a lot of people are going to mention that. Uh, I bought all six. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but fantastic facial expressions on Oberon throughout this. You know, surprise, fear, glee when he rolls the bowling ball down. You know, <laughs> surprise again immediately after it. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing that he can't get Max to stop and, you know, help. Max is not listening at all, so. Well, I don't know if that's amazing. That's pretty much Max. I mean, he did threaten to go lay down on the couch earlier in the middle of this crisis. But yeah, the, the, on page seven, the mad glee on Oberon's face after dumping the bowling ball is just amazing. It gets to call him tiny, which is wonderful. And then you get to see more mad glee on Oberon's face later on, gosh, what, page nine. It's a top right hand panel, another gorgeous panel of just, as Oberon's holding the BB gun, the Beatles gun. He's just got this yep. mad glee in his face right before he pulls the trigger. It's like, wow, dude. I mean, Kevin McGuire really nailed it. How old do you think Oberon is? Is he this side of 50? Yeah, I would think in his, you know, in his 50s. Now, nowadays, 50s a lot younger than it was 20 years ago. But I would say, you know, that that's what the comic artists were probably shooting for at this point. Now, keep in mind, the comic artists, I don't know how old Kevin McGuire is, but he's probably like... 21 years old at this point or something. Like everyone in comic books was young back then. I'm amazed when I watch interviews like The Death of Superman and stuff like that, and you think about... Uh, and I only mentioned this because I was just talking to Michael Bailey about it, but you, um, Death of Superman, you see uh, you know, amazing writers were on that thing, right? And you look at, at the time, they're like Dan Jurgens and Mike Carlin and Roger Stern. Those guys were kids. I mean, they really were, if you watch the interviews with them. So, you know, back then, young was young, and old wasn't really all that old, but that was, I would say, yeah, probably in his 50s. Yeah, wow. So, I mean, I mean, like Tom Cruise in the latest Mission Impossible is older than John Voight was in the first one. So <laughs> there you go. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, then we have a complete shift of the comic. It, it, you know, it's like two comics where we head to the uh, Fiji. I've actually been to Fiji. It's a nice island. There's nothing about this that actually says Fiji to me. I mean, there's palm trees, generic, but I mean, the, the one thing that stands out about Fiji is the natives, the the people who live there. They're very hospitable and uh, polite, and they have a saying which is "bula," and that means uh, everything from welcome to thanks to "kuranya." So yeah, but no Fijians in Fiji in this comic. Well, the, the thing that's Scream Fiji to me was on uh, page 11 where it says Fiji. Uh, that's kind of in, in the <laughs> caption box. That's really what kind of made me feel like it was Fiji. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's two places Aussies go on holidays, and it's Fiji and Bali. This is one of them. And some foolishly come to the United States for combo conventions. <laughs> Only the brave few. There it <laughs> it's is. It's not for everyone. <laughs> 
since we're talking about the Fiji part, I'll chime in on some of my notes here. Uh, so we mentioned the, the embassy in Paul's work office uh, where he works with Tasmanian Devil. They talk about Tasmanian Devil is taken out. I believe, uh, and I could be mistaken, but I believe this is the first time that they've ever mentioned that a metahuman is involved with the JLI embassy outside of the, the New York one. So far, I think all the other JLI embassies have been staffed by like regular humans. So this is a sort of a hint that there are other metahumans representing the JLI elsewhere. and Or, alternatively, maybe Tasmanian Devil didn't work there and he was just trying to use the JLI tube, but I like to think it's implying that he, you know, he's actually on the payroll. Well, I mean, he got paid to sit around in Canberra doing nothing, so that's good money. Kind of like you. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, I love that Dimitri, as he's falling all over himself and thinking about committing adultery with Wonder Woman, uh, he keeps calling her Wonderful Woman. I think that's hilarious. I love I love Dimitri's speech. It's so hysterical. Mr. Miracle. So Mr. Miracle boom tubes onto the Cahoon ship, right? It seems yep. like a real handy piece of tech there. Like, they should have used that more often. Like, wow. I, I don't remember them using that a lot in the just League book, and that's sure is handy. They, I mean, they don't use it. It's more for invasion level stuff, so, and this is an invasion tie-in, so I guess that's why they, they can break it out and justify it. Yeah. Now, you mentioned in the recap, uh, Ice powering up and really ramping her powers and creating the giant ice wall. I mean, that thing had to be about 40 feet high. You know, that was, and it was enough to damage that Cahoon ship. I mean, that was really impressive for her character. I was thrilled to see that moment. Yeah, um, and good on her. I mean, uh, Fire does nothing in this comic except talk to Ice the whole time, and she's impressed by that, at least. Well, yeah. she just uses an opportunity to knock Ice down by saying, I don't think everyone's right when they say your powers are stupid. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you mentioned there's not a lot of jokes. You're right. I mean, if you look, I mean, there are jokes. It is a funny issue. It's, it's very funny, especially the whole first half. The whole situation's hilarious. But if you really compare it to, like, last issue, which was the one on Apocalypse, I mean, that thing is just chock-a-block with jokes. As I, I think I counted it up last time. It was like 14 jokes in the first four pages. This one is not like that. It's not joke after joke after joke. There's a lot more action going on here than you would normally get in a JLI issue. I think the, the stakes have been raised, but there is a lot of situational humor the, rather than just cracking jokes. So I, it's, I think it's still funny, but you're right. They, they did bring the humor down a bit after last issue. Yeah, I mean, it is war, and, um, you know, there's thousands of aliens dying in this issue, so, you know, maybe it's not appropriate to be um, that funny. Let me ask you about that. So the last page is a moving discussion about death and the emotional cost of war. Did that page work for you, or did it fall short? Like, what what was your feelings on that page? Um, it, it feels like artificial pathos or, or something. I, I mean, we're used to seeing invasions being, you know, taking out the enemy and having a rah-rah moment. And, you know, they're going out of their way to, to say that this isn't how uh, Wonder Woman and John roll. And it sort of brings the comic to a screeching halt for a sec. So, I mean, I think it is valid for the characters. But, you know, if it hadn't been there, I don't think it would have hurt the story any. So what, what are your feelings? Yeah, I'm sort of like, and we're going to come back to this point in a minute when we talk about Wonder Woman. But yeah, that that last page has never really sat with me like you could feel it's supposed to have a huge emotional impact. You know, there's even a really great panel of uh, of Martian Manhunter and Wonder Woman face to face with no words. And they're sad about the fact that there's all this death of the enemies. And, and, and they understand that it has to happen. But why are people celebrating the death of all these enemies is what it's about. And it just doesn't strike home for me. Again, we'll come back to it in a minute. But I, it is funny, though, like ar- artistically, you know, there's that sad panel. And then Beetle literally slides into the panel like he's skidding and it sort of breaks up that somber moment with some humor which is kind of fun but um yeah it's uh, it's an odd page and uh, again mm-hmm. put a pin in that one folks now I, I do have some comments about the oberon side of the story too i love booster being immature and and having a little temper tantrum and not being able to fight the aliens i love that ori 
Oreos get brought in. Uh, yay! I always love when the Oreos get mentioned. Uh, yep. it, someone pointed out to me at some point they become Chocos, so we're going to have to watch out for that whenever Oreos finally sent them a cease and desist letter or whatever. Uh, that happened in the Martian Manhunter series that John Ostrander did. Ah, okay, there we go. Mm. A few Star Trek jokes in this one. You get you get straight up references to dilithium crystals, uh, Khan, and the, and the Genesis device by Beetle, which is fantastic. There's also, Booster makes a reference to three-dimensional checkers, which I think is Demetrius making another Star Trek joke, really, because of three-dimensional chess. He he's always loves to sprinkle in the uh, Star Trek references throughout these series. Yeah, it, it's quite thick in this one, isn't it? <laughs> and then uh, you get a nice call-out to Thaddeus Brown, who I don't know that they've ever really talked about Oberon's past in the JLI comic. And they, they recently touched on it, I believe, in the Secret Origins comic, so maybe that's what brought it back up. But yeah, there's a nice call-out to Thaddeus Brown, the original Mr. Miracle, which is fantastic. I always love seeing that stuff. And then I mentioned it in the recap. Oberon uses that you know the Blue Beetle gun to defeat the, the, the aliens. I'm pretty sure that is the only time that gun is ever used in Giffen and Demetrius' JLI. Now, they use it when they appear in other comics, like in Captain Adam, Blue Beetle does use his gun, but I don't think it ever happens when Giffen and Demetrius are writing it. Yeah, interesting. Sort of like Skeets. Never shows up. Yeah. So who's Skeets? Huh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> On page 21, if you've got that, mm-hmm. could Fire be showing any more side boob there? That is a total sideshow. Let me see. I'm going to that page, and I'm going to blow it up and frame it and put it on my wall, if it's as good as you say. No, no, I don't think she could. And then, you know, it's, I, I thought about that panel. Because what's happening is Hawkman is carrying Fire as they're flying away from the wherever part of the island to another part of the island. And Hawkwoman's right there flying next to him. I'm kind of surprised she didn't, like, you know, make a comment about Katar, watch the hands or something like that, because Fire is just all snuggled up. Up to him there, and she's even kicking her legs out like she's having fun. I think Hawkwoman would just carry fire and uh, solve the problem entirely. But that's uh, probably true. Hawkwoman's badass enough; she doesn't. And, and you know, maybe she's so confident she doesn't need to worry about fire because, quite frankly, Hawkwoman is, as I've said in previous episodes, she's the whole package. She, I, I I'm in love with this woman. Um, <laughs> so it, it's kind of a weird panel because, yeah, usually there's other ways the JLI gets transported. This one, you've got Beetle hanging on to Martian Manhunter. You've got Mister Miracle carrying ice. You've got Hawkman carrying fire. So it is, it is unusual for the JLI. Usually they have some sort of transportation method rather than everyone hanging on for dear life. Hmm. I hadn't thought about that. Hmm. Possible Sergeant Rock cameo on the bottom of that page as well. Oh, you think that's Sergeant Rock? Well, it could be. Just the guy in the helmet or the, the bald guy? The guy in the helmet. Or just any soldier in any military could be as well, but okay. Or Sergeant Rock. Okay, there we go. I will check uh, the comic book database and see if they mention Sergeant Rock has a cameo on this issue. Well spotted. Thank you. <laughs> it's in the Australian database, uh, for sure. <laughs> it's in your part of the world. I should give you. I should, uh, I should defer to you, so... Okay, all right. Oh, uh, one of the things I thought they did really well in the first half of the story with Oberon was there's some nice foreshadowing because there's lots of comments about Oberon's height throughout the first half. You know, they, they, they're referring to the word tiny. Uh, Oberon's in, in, the, in on the jokes, too. That he talks about how he's a dwarf. I mean, they really built that up. So when the little tiny aliens show up, it's like, oh, you know, sort of it, it leads in well. So a well-done job in the script to really uh, convey that ahead of time. Yeah. And those Roach Motels are going to come back and haunt the JLI later, folks. Just uh, remember that in a couple of months when we talk about uh, issue 24. That will definitely come back to get them. Now, you mentioned Fire not really having anything to do in this issue. You're absolutely right. She is sort of the, uh, I hate to call Fire a loser, but she's sort of the loser in this issue. Because really, Oberon and Marshman Honor are the stars of the issue, I think. Uh, they get Mr. Miracle and Blue Beetle are kind of the support group. They get a lot to do. There's a couple of Hawkman and Hawkwoman moments. Uh, Guy Gardner and Rocket Red really much are pretty much taken off the table, but they get a chance to sign in the Wonder Woman book. Ice gets a little bit to do. And yeah, Fire does practically nothing 
No. It's, uh, kind of a wasted moment. Now, she's had other issues where she got to feature, like, you know, the one where, where she, her and Bruce went to Bialya, so she's had other moments to shine. But um, just kind of a shame here. And then um, also la- my last comment there, I think, is, uh, at least on the story, is, is the Cahoon ship that explodes, the one they put the bomb on, and it you know causes a chain reaction wiping out the entire Cahoon fleet. T- to be fair, I know it's comics and that was their plan, but that was a pretty darn lucky move that that worked out. I mean, destroying an entire fleet with one blow is pretty amazing. It must be a really big bomb, that's all I can say. Yeah, it's got to be a very, very powerful. Maybe it's a apocalyptic bomb or something like that, because that's almost a little too much. Now, would we regret not talking about Blue Beetle's room at all? Oh, it's in my comments, yeah. So what do you got? Yeah. Well, full-size poster of a woman in negligee uh, with a pole. Yes. Yes. Makes me miss the 80s so much. Yeah. Um, this bedroom looks so – I mean, he's got a, a poster of a race car, and as you said – and it's a, what, you, what, what we would call in the States a door poster, so it's the size of a door. You know, oh, we don't uh, have doors in Australia. We only have tent flaps. So. That's true. That's true. Okay. As is shown in this comic. Um, but uh, – yeah, I mean, that is that is so – I don't know if it was that way in Australia, but that was so 1980s. Having a door poster of a girl in lingerie was absolutely something, you know, teenagers did in the 80s. So it's absolutely perfect for being able to have that up. Cracked me up. And a Godzilla toy, possibly, on the dresser. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Later on, he's got a, 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 a Wiley Coyote doll, which uh, ah. I, I like to think is a nice nod to Grant Morrison. Probably not, since that was only a month ago. Probably more with the <laughs> Looney Tunes sort of thing, but yes, lovely. Now, we also got to talk about the art with Maxwell Lord. Maxwell Lord, drawn by Kevin McGuire, especially on like page one and two. You know, he, he's, he's a generic-looking dude. He's just a white guy with brown hair, right? There's nothing interesting about him. However, McGuire draws him so exact and so distinct. Like, I, I could recognize him in a crowd. That You know, I know what Maxwell Lord looks like because Ken McGuire designed such an, a, a recognizable face. It makes him look so real and distinct from other people. It's, it's really impressive. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, Sam Neill, is that what we're thinking? Or? Well, I mean, that, that's supposedly, uh, and I read this interview book with, with Ken McGuire where he said there was one panel that he based on Sam Neill from uh, The Omen. And everything else has just been whatever he's come up with. He said he didn't use reference. So it was only the one panel, but that does seem to be what everybody keys in on. And it does sort of look like Sam Neill. Yeah. Oh, good for you for reading a book. Well, it had pictures. So. <laughs> uh, the aliens. We don't see – I mean, the second half of the issue is just all Cahoons. But in the first part, we get to see an Okaran and a Scion. Yep. And, uh, yeah, that's nice. It's good to see some alien variety. And one thing I've always liked about the Cahoons is that they all look completely different. You know, where most alien species all look identical and wear the exact same clothes because it's just a shortcut to help the reader. You know, that's not how, you know, we work. I mean, you and I, you know, we're on other parts of the world and we don't dress the same. I mean, like, I wear comic book t-shirts and shorts. You probably don't wear those kinds of clothes. Oh, wait, you do. Um, okay, well, anyway, uh, the idea that these Cahoons all look different and have different skin color and different helmets and different costumes, I like that they continue that thought because that's, everyone wouldn't look the same. So, um, well. Yeah, most the Cahoons look like uh, Masters of the Universe toys that never got made. That is a, it's a good – maybe they had a deal with uh, – was it Kenner or Mattel going, or Hasbro going at this time with, with JLI? That could be a potential you know, moneymaker for them, crossing those two over. I love the little alien standing on Booster Gold's chest too. When, when Oberon comes around, the alien's actually on his chest and you actually see a panel of him leaping off Booster's chest, which I, I don't know why. It just cracked my junk up. <laughs> You know, I mean, I guess that's really it. There's a couple of nice panels of Martian Manhunter looking sad. They did some really neat stuff with shadows throughout the issue. But overall, I mean, it was really, really lovely to have Kevin McGuire back on the book. Uh, I love Ty Templeton, don't get me wrong. But any chance you get a chance to see these, this experienced 
hand of Kevin Maguire, especially once he'd gotten, you know, a few, a, a year or two under his belt with JLI, his style is just unbelievable. He is at the top of his game here. I love it so much. Yes. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And he's an artist that just gets better and better. I mean, he mostly does pinups now and, uh, you know, who wouldn't love to own one? All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into a little bit of Wonder Woman number 25. Now, I, interestingly enough, you know, I've, I've had this comic for you know, however many decades I've owned it now. Until this week, I had never actually read Wonder Woman number 25. I knew it tied into the invasion. And then when Siskoi did the invasion podcast, I learned a lot more about it. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize how closely it was tied into JLI. And now having read it, I'm like, oh, it is directly tied into this issue. So I'm going to give you a quick recap of the, of the story here, folks, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. So it, the story opens, Themyscira is attacked by several Thanagarian ships. They're trying to pierce like the protective shell around the island, but Wonder Woman successfully defends uh, the island against the aliens. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Etta Candy, as we saw in this issue, or heard about in this issue, is lost on a South Pacific island behind enemy lines. And she's carrying critical intelligence for the human defense against the alien invaders. Well, Wonder Woman is recruited by Black Canary and the U.S. military to help out in the South Pacific to stop the invaders and to rescue Etta Candy. Now, this is where Wonder Woman meets up with the JLI. And the interesting thing is, uh, they clearly coordinated these books very, very closely because we get several familiar panels like we see in the JLI issues. Even some of them are even laid out somewhat similarly. And um, they even get a lot of exact repeated dialogue. So, like, the whole thing with Beetle and Dimitri drooling all over her and Ice and Fire being a bit catty, I mean, that is word for word the same in the Wonder Woman issue and the JLI issue, which is really, really nice coordination. Uh, in fact, Fire's dialogue is, is expanded in that one where she's being catty about Wonder Woman. Uh, she actually says, I happen to know for a fact that Wonder Woman has had several facelifts and a tummy tuck, which really, I don't know whether this says more about Fire or less, but either way, it was very funny. Wonder Woman asks for experienced warriors to help on her Etta Candy rescue mission, and John wants firepower in the mission, so he selects Guy Gardner and Rocket Red. Now, as I mentioned before, it was revealed in the JLI issue that Guy Gardner is sort of disgusted by Wonder Woman, but they never tell us why, which always perplexed me. Now I know it's revealed here in Wonder Woman. He uh, is revealed that the reason he doesn't like Wonder Woman is because she's a pacifist. Guy wants to work with someone who's going to kick butt, not as he puts it, a pacifist schoolmarm. Wow. He, he wasn't going to go on the mission. Fire and Ice actually threatened to uh, cause him extreme pain, and so they coerce him to go along with Wonder Woman on the mission. And I love that Fire then quietly refers to Wonder Woman as the hussy. Once on the mission, both Guy Gardner and Rocket Red damage enemy ships, and Wonder Woman is horrified by their violence, thinking there was a more peaceful method to disabling the ships. You get several nice moments of Dimitri trying to figure out the capabilities of his new armor, which is a nice touch, and Guy Gardner manages to help save Etta Candy, and Wonder Woman is then forced to destroy an alien alien ship and all hands aboard uh, in order to protect Guy Gardner, proving that Wonder Woman's uh, Amazon code does allow for peace and war. And the issue ends the same as the JLI issue with Wonder Woman and Martian Manhunter talking that, that bit we discussed a minute ago, where they're discussing war and how killing an enemy is necessary, but asking why do people take pleasure in killing the enemy. And now here's where it's interesting, Paul. I felt like that same last page, well, I, well, I think Kevin McGuire did a better job illustrating it, the, the message is more meaningful after reading Wonder Woman. Because ah. Wonder Woman is really opposed to violence. She's really opposed to killing anyone. And ultimately, there's that big moment where she does destroy an alien ship and kills all those people to save Guy Gardner, even though Guy's ring would have done it for him. She didn't know that. But she basically is proving I'm willing to kill when I need to for the right reasons. And I think it really that, – that, that message works a lot better after reading Wonder Woman. So – Obviously, bits and pieces were written by different writers because, again, that dialogue was the same in both issues. So I'm guessing that's probably DiMatteis dialogue, the funny parts. But I wouldn't be surprised if Perez played a strong hand in that last page because it seems to make more sense with the Wonder Woman issue. Ah, okay. Thanks for the homework. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I, I don't know how, but I've, I've managed to go through my comic book collecting career without really reading many of issues from the Perez Wonderwoman era. I, I don't know much about it. So this was, uh, this was, I, I mean, I've read a few, especially crossover issues, but this was a little bit uncharted territory for me. Yeah. And the cover is just gorgeous. It, it's a George Perez cover. Now, Perez didn't do the inside. In fact, I think issue 25 is where Perez stops drawing the inside, if I, if I remember right. But the cover is Wonder Woman by Perez standing there, you know, with her, with her, uh, lasso outreached and got these alien ships uh, behind them attacking a jungle. And Guy Gardner is there with his ring raised and Rocket Red's there with his glowing fist raised. I mean, just Perez knocking it out of the park. Looks great. Yeah, a better looking spaceship than you see in, uh, by McGuire. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I would agree with that. So, all right. Well, let's talk about the house ads real quick. So there is a full page ish, uh, ad here called the Daily Planet Invasion First Strike. And it gives all, you know, shows the globe of the, of the world. Doesn't include Australia though, because frankly, nobody cares. So anyway, there's, there's all these little arrows pointing around and it gives you like updates on what's happening in all the countries. And well, it's not a direct ad for like saying, read Firestorm to find out what's going in the South Pacific. Read Flash to find out what's going in Cuba. It sort of hints at it though. Like if you read the Cuba section, they talk about Manhunter. They talk about Flash. You kind of pick up on where you're supposed to go from there. So, uh, it's cute. Yeah, and I mean, ads today wouldn't ask people to do this much work to get anything out of them, really, with the little paragraphs that, you know, you get to the bottom and they tell you something about a comic that isn't entirely clearly identified, but uh, you can sort of extrapolate, oh, maybe I should read Animal Man if I want to know what happened with the uh, San Andreas Fault or something. Yeah, so interesting, but kind of boring. <laughs> it is boring, but I think I prefer this to just a checklist. I mean, it's more fun. It's a little, a little more to read. You know, nowadays when you read a comic, you know, ba- back then there were the more, more words and stuff in a comic and nowadays you can read a comic in like three minutes so you know more words is always a good thing yeah interesting they got the issue number of the daily planet and it's uh roman numerals which look like it says 2085 no i would read that as see, 1000 and then you get what x uh, l so that'd be 40 wait what <laughs> LLL, which would be, what, 150 minus 10, 145? Yeah, 1,145. I don't know what that's supposed to be. Wow, I'm sort of embarrassed. Okay. Um, folks at home, figure that out for us. And it's only 35 yeah. cents, though. Look at that. Awesome. Speaking of places with a lot more words, the next house ad is for a little comic that really didn't go anywhere, I don't think, called Sandman by Neil Gaiman. Huh. Ah, the Spider-Man villain. Right, exactly right. It's, uh, I believe, even though it's, uh, yeah, this is a Mike Drigenberg ad where he, you know, uh, it says, I will show you terror in a handful of dust. And you see Morpheus, you know, with a glowing hand. Sandman, he controls your dreams. A horror-edged fantasy set in the DC universe. Available monthly in DC's new format beginning in November. Not set there for very long. No, not for long. You're right. Exactly right. I do list this writer by Neil Gaiman, writer of Black Orchid. So that's his <laughs> selling point is writer of Black Orchid. Art by Sam Keith and Mike Dringenberg covered by Dave McKean. Wow. What a, now, when did you – I'm assuming because you're human and on Earth, you've read Sandman. Uh, oh, yeah. When, when did you get into it? Um, around about issue five. Oh, wow. So, okay. Early days. So really, yeah, early days. I mean, I, I was like, oh, that looks weird. And then I think I – I mean, I tended to keep my, um, you know, eye on the fan press and see what was hot. And, you know, that was getting really good, uh, interesting reviews. So I um, found them all. They weren't too hard to find back then. And I've since sold them all but switched to trades and I've got the whole run in trades. Um, long time since I've read it and not something I'm thinking, ah, that'll be a fun, relaxing read. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, it does feel like a project, doesn't it? It feels like a, it a pretty heady thing. I haven't jumped back and reread it either. Now, for me, 
I, I shopped at a local comic shop that I ended up working at that's still in business, Cosmic Cat Comics. Um, love that shop. I went in there and uh, as a customer, and I, I at this point, this is what, what do we say, 88? So probably in 89, I would have been 17, and I'm like, well, I'm grown up now, so I should be reading grown-up comics. And I was getting a little tired of superheroes at that point, and I, I went to the comic shop guy that I trusted, and I said, I want something more mature. And I doubt I use those words. I probably said, I'm looking for something interesting for grown-ups. I don't know how I worded it. And he hooked me up, and I don't know if they happened at the same time, but I don't know what months they came out. But he put, I remember at various points, he put two different comics in my hand. One was Sandman number eight, which was new on the shelves at that point, which is the introduction of death, which is Good a issue. great jumping on point for that comic. Oh, my gosh. And I was absolutely hooked. And then another comic he put in my hands, again, I don't know if it was the same month or not, he put Doom Patrol number 26 in my hands. Ooh. A book not, that you may not have, familiar with them, that one. So. Yeah, it's 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 about well, it's it's some misfits. They're sort of losers. It's a rip off of the X Men, really. In fact, the guy who wrote it went on to write X Men, so clearly that's what he wanted to write rather than Doom Patrol. But anyway, <laughs> um, that that's the big Mister Nobody issue, where I don't even know if the Doom Patrol is in the issue or if, if it's just about the origin of Mister Nobody, if I remember right, in uh, the Brotherhood of Dada. And it's just oh my, that comic changed my life, dude. And uh, it's it's at that point I I walked away for the most part from superhero comics. I was still reading. Firestorm and a couple issues, uh, but I was I was all in on the dark, mature stuff. It took me a couple years to uh, come back, actually, from all that. Sorry, mm. easily easily distracted by all the pretty shiny pr- proto vertigo stuff. Another house ad for a book deeply uh, rooted in the JLI mythos. It's Mister Miracle, written at that point, at least for these eight, first eight issues, by J.M. DeMatteis, with art by Ian Gibson. Uh, it, the the drawing is it's funny. It's it's like a, a the, the border is like needlepoint, and it says just folk. And then the picture is Mr. Miracle and uh, Big Barda in, in very much the uh, like American Gothic painting. So rather than a pitchfork, she's just holding her helmet with all the spikes. And in the background, you see Oberon flying through a wall. It's adorable. And it says Surviving the American Dream. Again, a great creative team. It started, the book was starting in November. And it's really about uh, Mr. Miracle and Big Barda trying to have a suburban life, you know, away from the superhero madness. And yet it follows them everywhere they go. And Oberon lives with them. It's an absolutely wonderful read. I enjoy, I, in fact, just recently reread the first seven issues by J.M.D. Mateus, or uh, eight issues, sorry, by J.M.D. Mateus. And then later on, um, you know, I don't remember who, I guess Lynn Wien was writing it and Joe Phillips was drawing it. I, I fell in love with the book. I, I love the whole series. It's a lot of fun. Did you ever read this one? I, I did. I did. And I think it suffered by comparison to JLI because uh, I, I remember feeling like it was JLI light, I guess. And hmm. I, I wasn't a big fan of Ian Gibson's art. I mean, he's a, an artist I know mostly from 2000 AD and Judge Dredd and things like that. So, yeah, it's just something never clicked with me on this one. So uh, I, I had the whole run, and I think I curated it out of my collection at some point. And I honestly say I don't really regret not having it anymore. Wow. I'm, I, I'm cold, yes, sorry. Cold-blooded. <laughs> like 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 your island full of reptiles. Um, well, I, I'll, I'll take a different perspective on it. Now, as I mentioned a few times in the show, I didn't start reading JLI till issue 42. So I came in much later. I was reading Justice League Europe the whole time it was publishing, why I chose to collect Europe instead of America, I'll never understand. So I was reading Mr. Miracle before I was reading JLI. So I probably didn't get that JLI light sense that you're discussing because I was only reading Mr. Miracle. And I love, like, uh, Ian Gibson leaves pretty early on in the series, about the same time as J.M.D. Mateus, and Joe Phillips comes on board. And I love Joe Phillips' art. I, it, especially at this point, he was just fantastic. And they do a lot of stuff with the cluster and Mr. Miracle. It, it travels into space and stuff like that. It's, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Now, I, again, I rereading it, I've only read up, reread up through issue eight. I don't know if I'd feel the same about the rest of it now that I've read JLI. I'd have to go back and look. But um, I think it's a fun series, and I think you're wrong, and that you know is kind of how life's going to work, I think. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm fine with you being wrong. Um, I'm just going to mention this because it's in here. There's an ad for Gamma Rotters from TSR. Uh, oddly enough, going through a box of unread comics the other day, I discovered I own the first issue. Who knew? Uh, let's see. Then there's... Okay, so there's another ad, just like last month, for Black Orchid. This miniseries by Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean. Siskoid and I talked about it last episode. And clearly, underneath the photo, there is a signature that can't possibly be Dave McKean, and yet Paul says otherwise. Yeah, that's a, that's a definitely... It just He hasn't got a side stroke down the, in, the back of the D, but it's definitely Dave McKean. Like if you if you just ignore the first letter, you can see Ave, and then something starts with M, and then a really big K, and then mm. uh, yeah, it's Dave McQueen, man. I, yeah, I it, it you know it looks like an S, but you're right. It, that's a, the A V E is clear. The M C K is you know darn it. Dave, I'm gonna write a stern letter to Dave McQueen about a signature because this is just absolutely unacceptable. I, I can't have this. Yeah, whatever happened to that guy? Yeah, but uh, this is one that I love. It's a great little series. It was the first time that Neil Gaiman was uh, working in for D. I, well, no, he did a bit of Secret Origin stuff. That's not true. But this was his big thing that was coming. And it, it's right in this perfect spot. It's pre-Vertigo, but I love this part of DC Universe where Vertigo and DC Universe just sort of touch each other. And there's they make the DC Universe seedier. Like, Lex Luthor is in this comic, and he is so – like, he's never been this nasty and evil in a DC comic as he is in this one. Um, yeah, and it, uh, the first issue is just uh, – it's – Fantastic. There's some full on, it's like a James Bond moment where Black Orchid gets captured uh, while she's undercover. They say, oh, we're not going to tell you our plans. We're not going to leave you in a room to, you know, be killed by a death trap. And they put a bullet in her head and then set fire to her. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. And that's how the comics start. But, I assume she gets better. Uh, well, I won't spoil it, but uh, the comic, as it, as it turns out, is it becomes a sort of meditation on what, what's the point of violence. So, you know, with such a violent start, the story ends up very different. And there's, you know, really good, um, cameo by Swamp Thing. But, uh, it, yeah, this was a really good miniseries and it led into an ongoing that shouldn't have happened because yeah. it was never, never as good as this. That seemed to happen a lot with those proto vertigo miniseries like Kid Eternity amazing miniseries by Grant Morrison just totally blew my socks off and then the ongoing starts and you're like oh or Books of Magic another amazing uh, miniseries now some people might argue the ongoing was good but I it, it never grabbed me so um, that seemed to happen a lot where they just like they, they wanted to keep milking that cow and it just didn't work as well as a, the short run well they didn't use the same writers basically which was the kiss of death um, from my point of view was yeah. you know if, if Grant Morrison doesn't want to keep Kid Eternity going it probably shouldn't keep going Yes, the original writers are gone. It's just never the same. So, I, I will just throw one quick Black Orchid reference in, which really has nothing to do with this, but it made me happy. I was just rereading the Blue Devil Summer Fun special, which is an absolute hoot from a couple years before this, and Black Orchid is in there. And in that story, they purposely give her multiple origins, one that makes her look very much like Spider-Man, one that makes her look very much like Daredevil. It's absolutely adorable and hilarious. Do, do they actually give Black Orchid an origin in this uh, new game story? Uh, they do, yes. And, I mean, it, it, that's probably one of the things that uh, strengthens the start of the story is the fact that uh, Black Orchid is a blank slate. I mean, I think she'd done a stint in the Suicide Squad as well leading up to this. Uh, mm -hmm. But, yeah, I mean, one of the things is no one really knows anything about her. They uh, Neil Gaiman plays with that as a, you know, part of the story. So. Cool. Hmm. 
And, and like you said, I love this early era where they just brush up against the DC universe with so many of these uh, mature books. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. If you like Swamp Thing of this era, then, you know, you'll like Black Orchid. And since we're mentioning that, I have been purposefully reading some JLI appearances in uh, Proto Vertigo books recently, and uh, I've got re- I've got my reasons. So, all right. <laughs> uh, there is an ad also for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. I have nothing more to say than that. Uh, <laughs> So that wraps up the house ads. Now, Paul, uh, I'm going to be able to sit down. I uh, have myself a Foster's here because uh, I'm t- going to take a moment to let you discuss the character spotlight. This is where Paul is going to share some thoughts on a particular character from this book. It's not really necessarily an origin recap that we're looking for. More like, you know, where this character was in the DC Universe before joining the JLI and uh, how the JLI kind of impacted their lives. So, uh, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about Hawkwoman? Okay, now the Hawkwoman I'm talking about is Ashera Thal, and she was born on the planet Thanagar, which is a planet orbiting the star Polaris, no relation to the X-Men. Thanagar had a scientifically advanced civilization in which crime was virtually unknown. So why did they have a police force that's what i wonder but they did have one and they had wings but their police force's most decorated officer is a guy called qatar hall it sounds a bit like carter hall doesn't it mm-hmm. uh, and yeah and he uh, was successful in capturing the rainbow robbers who sound very formidable and scary um <laughs> but at first qatar was furious that he was uh, being assigned an inexperienced young woman as a partner but nevertheless he overcame that when he saw how hot she was um yeah so together they captured the the Rainbow Robbers uh, in a terrifying ordeal, <laughs> and they found their stronghold behind a waterfall won the case, and uh, Shaira saved Qatar's life, and the two fell deeply in love. Why not? And a few weeks later, Qatar proposed to Shaira in front of the same waterfall. How romantic. Mm-hmm. And she accepted, and they were married. Ten years later, the couple were sent to Earth in pursuit of the criminal Biff Rock. That sounds like uh, an 80s album. Uh, <laughs> upon reaching Earth, they were befriended by Midway City Police Commissioner George Emmett, who established cover identities for them as Carter and Shiera Hall, conveniently similar to their surname and first names. They captured Bith and they brought him back to the planet and Qatar and Shiera chose to return to study Earth's crime-fighting methods, I don't know why, and they fought against evil as the superheroes Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Although her husband was soon to join the Justice League of America, Hawkgirl was not a member and they had some sort of stupid rule about there being, you know, no duplicate powers. Yeah, it was... was, they also said I just reread the page the other night. They're talking about like oh, we can only induct one member at a time. Sorry, Hawkgirl, and like Adam is explaining it to her, and you can tell he's just lying through his teeth. I mean, he's stuttering. Yeah. He's like, uh, 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 and like really, guys, why don't you just say sorry, Hawkgirl? We're sexist. You can't be on our boys' team. We only <laughs> let Wonder Woman around because she could kick our ass. You know, it's yeah. kind of how that works. Uh-huh. But um, eventually they changed their mind, and uh, she did become a JLA member eventually, mm-hmm. like a hundred mm-hmm. issues later. Yeah. Um, um, eventually, she also changed her name from Hawk Girl to Hawk Woman because uh, she thought the connotations of the word girl on Earth do not please her. Um, and as Shara, she worked as Carter's secretary, which would have been handy for him and convenient for a married couple. Um, but later, they, she became co-director of the Midway City Museum. Later, Thanagar became a military dictatorship bent on conquering other planets, and it probably got involved with the invasion on that basis. And Hawkman and Hawkwoman thwarted Thanagarian plans to invade Earth, uh, destroying their own starship in the process. Uh, and they remained on Earth, and they were regarded as traitors by everyone on Thanagar, which is where they are at at the time of the invasion. Yeah, personally, I didn't care a jot about Hawkwoman until uh, John Ostrander did the Hawk World ongoing. 
which uh, sort of scrapped that continuity and uh, led to some continuity acrobatics to try and... Well, I, I won't blame John Ostrander for that. I think it's the, the miniseries and by Tim Truman. Who was the editor? Mike Gold was, I think, was the one who made the decision to not say 10 years ago, which would have made it work with everything. But uh, instead, they said it in the present day of the DC Universe. So you actually had Hawkman running around in one book and a new version of Hawkman in a miniseries, which uh, let's not get into that again. Right. We, we've been down this path before, so I don't really want to argue this. Apparently, Paul doesn't pay attention when I said that this shall not be named again. However, I will back up what you said, though. Like, Hawkwoman, I, I certainly noticed her. I thought she was an interesting – I don't even want to say interesting. I thought she was a cool character, mildly, up until Hawk World series, which is exactly as you mentioned, where I first noticed her, really noticed her and thought, oh my gosh, she is absolutely badass. In fact, I think the Hawk World persona of Shearthal is the best version of Hawkwoman. I, and I think the, uh, honestly, I think the Justice League cartoon owes a lot to the Hawk World version of Shiera. She is, she is competent. She's totally uh, an ass kicker. She's, you know, she's a little more violent than she probably should be. She's, she's, she doesn't waste time. She doesn't suffer fools. She's smart. She's beautiful she's sexy she's got again the whole package i i fell hardcore now i have a weakness for redheads anyway my wife's a redhead but she was amazing in that series and they continue to keep her around for a long time before they redid continuity again but ever since then they've done some amazing things with hawkwoman and she's a fantastic character yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I, I just want to say, John Ostrander, I think, has done so much for the DC Universe. And I think so many of the creators, you know, the architects of the DC Universe today would probably have a, a creative debt to him because I think they really took his lead on a lot of books. I mean, I don't think you can get, like, Greg Rucker's take on anything without, you know, going through John Ostrander's Suicide Squad and uh, Jeff Johns. I think he drew on so much on what what came from there. So, yeah, a really underpraised creator in my book. Absolutely. He, I mean, he gets praised for Suicide Squad, but the rest of his stuff he takes a lot of heat for, which is undeserved. Again, the Hawkworld series, for its flaws, was still very, very good. It made Hawkman more acceptable in the DC Universe again. Uh, you know, he did some great stuff with Firestorm. He did, oh gosh, I'm blanking. He did a bunch of other books, too. He was a fantastic creator. He really, really was. Think, yeah, as you said, Suicide Squad, think about the, the franchise and the Empire, DC and the money they've made just on that. Regardless of whether you like the movie or not, DC's made a ton of money off that franchise, and it's still alive to this day, and that's down to John Ostrander. Did they do a movie? Well, I mean, I think it was a TV movie, and nobody watched it. Oh, so. uh. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for that recap of Hawkwoman, um, and thank you for not mentioning the retcon of these not really being Hawkman and Hawkwoman in this issue. Anyway, um, with that, we're going to move on to the moment everyone has been waiting for. It is the... Pwahaha Award. And this is where we nominate the funniest moment of the issue. Both myself and Paul are going to pick one moment, and only one of them are going to walk away with a coveted Wahaha Award. All right, Paul, this is the moment of truth. This is where you prove your cred. What would you suggest as the funniest moment of the issue? Oh, um, it's it's slim pickings, I'm going to say that. I mean, I, this should be called the, the Slight Smile Award this month, I, I would say. <laughs> I, I, you've had like two years to prepare for this, sir. Yeah, I, I know, I know. Um, I, I guess the f the thing is that there's no moment that stands out more than any other. So I'm just going to have to pick one. I'm going to pick uh, Oberon running up the stairs when he yells, "Run away!" 
and the aliens start shooting at him, the, the tiny little aliens. Yes, no, that's very good. And oddly enough, mine is on the next page. Uh, oh. It's when it's the, it's essentially the same scene, but it's when Oberon gets to the top of the stairs and then rolls a bowling ball down the stairs and starts literally bowling over the aliens, and he's got a mad look of glee on his face. Um, that's actually my moment. So really, they're kind of connected. Yeah, we could join them together and have a, a, a joint Bwahaha Award moment. You know, I think we'll do that. That's the first time we've done that on the show, but I think we will do that, well. sir. So Oberon, one way or another, was going to win this award for his battle with the uh, little tiny coons. So congratulations, Oberon. You have won the Bwahaha Award from two different JLI uh, you know, fans. So congratulations, sir. Wear it with pride. The award is as tangible as the laughter we give you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. All right, so now with the Bwahaha Award out of the way, um, Paul, we've been sort of putting this off. I mean, don't you really need to go check on your office at work? I mean, when, when we looked, the Australian embassy was a complete disaster. Uh, this is almost like a flimsy uh, reason to get rid of me, it feels uh, like. It's... Maybe, maybe, yeah, kind of, sort of. Oh, sure. Hope you get some feedback from someone cool. All right, bye. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Paul's getting that squared away. I'm going to read your feedback in a segment called... Justice Log. Alright folks, before we get into the feedback, just a little bit of news. Our buddy Brad Glenn sent us a link to an article on CBR from August 8th entitled, A Collection of References to Batman's One Punch. (laughs) It's a fun little article with lots of different references from DC Comics, featuring, well, what you would expect, a bunch of situations where Justice Leaguers or various folks, Batman, Green Lantern, Guy Gardner, etc., are involved in situations with One Punch. Then our buddy Derek Crabb from History of Comics on Film, he sent us a link from DC Comics. Uh, it was a page from Mr. Miracle number 10, the recent issue that came out. It features Booster Gold and Blue Beetle there with Mr. Miracle, and they're talking, having conversation, and they even managed to uh, squeeze in a very melancholy Bwahaha reference. That was nice. All right, let's get into your feedback. Now, folks, remember, hit us up on the social media. Hashtag is PoundFWPodcast. You can find us as JLI Podcast on Twitter and Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast on Facebook. As I said earlier, it is all about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. We want to hear from you and we want you involved in this show. And remember, when you're posting your comments, if you're from outside the United States, let me know because then we will assign you the appropriate embassy. And this is always good to know too because if you're international, we have to filter iTunes properly to see your reviews. Which, speaking of, we're going to get into a couple iTunes reviews here. And thank you so much for those of you that have been leaving these. They really, really help raise the profile of the show and they get the word out there. And again, it helps this community grow even more. Our first iTunes review is an international review. It comes from Alan W. Wright of the boldoutlaw.com website and he's in the Canadian embassy. Alan writes, great show about a much-loved version of the Justice League. And he says, greetings from the Toronto JLI Consulate. Canada has contributed many great members to the Justice League. Green Arrow, Superman, multiple versions, Supergirl, The Flash, Firestorm. It's so gratifying to have a show pay tribute to these great Canadian heroes. What do you mean they're not Canadian? Well, they're filmed in Vancouver. Oh, what do you mean the filming locations don't count? Well, it's still a wonderful show paying tribute to that great Canadian superhero, Booster Gold. What? New 52 continuity doesn't count either? (sighs) Ah, 
Okay. It's still a delightful and fun podcast that covers the international, i.e. mostly American, heroes. If you fondly remember the 1980s and 1990s comics or just want to discover a take on the world's greatest heroes that's a bit different, this is the podcast for you. Return with Shag and his co-host to a time when comics were fun and when the personalities were more important than the powers. Aw, that is incredibly kind, Alan. Thank you so much for that lovely review. Then we got another iTunes review. This one's from Ian Rainey. His subject line was, My Favorite Comic and New Favorite Podcast. He says, I stumbled upon this a few months ago and couldn't be happier. The whole Fire and Water Podcast Network is awesome, but this was my first foray into the network. The host loves the material. The different co-hosts offer good insight. Well, obviously he hasn't heard Paul yet, but anyway, I'll keep going. He says, and I'm learning new stuff about the material I love. I look forward to each month when this is released. If you like Justice League, then you need to listen to this. And if you love the JLI, then you already are. While I'm here, my JLI comic origin story. Ooh, ooh, thank you, Ian. I love hearing people's comic origin story. All right, so Ian continues. My first superhero comic was Justice League Europe number 41. I was reading Archie comics before that, and sometime in 1992, my dad finally convinced me to pick this up on a spinner rack in an airport. From there, I was hooked. And luckily, DC was teeing up the death of Superman, and within weeks, I was watching these new characters be decimated. And I was hooked as I read forward in an era of Justice League that many don't love, and I was falling head over heels. And at the same time, I was back issue diving. One Christmas, I received the entire Breakdowns crossover from my dad. He had spent the last few months flipping through comics on the streets in New York City. Yes, New York City used to sell comics on the streets. Uh, searching for the complete run of the Breakdown story. I still remember that Christmas and wanted to read it right then. A few years back, I gave my dad for his birthday issue 41 of that Justice League Europe that he bought me back in 1992. And I recently learned that my dad's favorite hero growing up was Aquaman. Ah, oh, Ian, that's awesome. I love that story. Thank you so much for sharing it. And thank you to everyone who submitted an iTunes review. We sincerely appreciate it. We've got a bunch of them out there, but every additional review helps that magical iTunes algorithm to help more people find the show. And for those of you out there who have not yet submitted an iTunes review, well, I hope you get miniaturized and Oberon throws a bowling ball at you. There you go. All right, now we're going to get into your feedback covering JLI number 21, my guest, Siskoid. So I'm going to be pulling comments from our website and our email and social media and just pulling bits and pieces here and there, cherry-picking the bits I want to talk about because you guys leave so much feedback every single month. It's amazing. I love y'all's involvement. It's incredible. But if I tried to read everything you guys wrote, we'd be here all night. First up, we heard from Clinton Robinson from the Coffee and Comics podcast. Now, if you remember last month, one of the house ads was that call the Superman hotline uh, house ad. So I asked it for people's story on whether they had called it or not. So here's Clinton's story. Because I never called the Superman hotline, but I love the R Ruby Spears cartoon. Thank you very much. I did get permission to call the He-Man call line and the Woody Woodpecker one. I honestly can't remember Jack about the He-Man one. I do remember the Woody Woodpecker one involved him telling you a story. But in true Woody Woodpecker style, he spoke so quickly that you had to wait for the tape to repeat itself so you could try and catch everything he said. Couldn't tell you how much it ended up costing my folks, but I'm sure it was way more than the experience was worth. <laughs> well, thank you, Clinton. I appreciate that. Then we heard from my buddy Chris Franklin, who's part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as the JLU cast and Superman Movie Minute and many more. Chris writes, a quick note while I'm listening. I believe some of the art in that Superman action line ad was done by Keith Giffen himself. I think those images of Darkseid, the Parademon, and the background were all art Giffen had produced during the Superpowers era. I've seen it on other products at the time, and it looks very Giffen-esque to me. Of course, the main image of Superman is by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. Chris goes on to say, isn't it funny how inactive Batman is in the big apocalypse fight scene? He's basically the straight man to all the zaniness going on. A decade later, Batman would be poning parademons and fourth world flunkies left and right. Here, Giffen, Demetrius, and Templeton remember that Batman is, you know, human. What a concept. I totally agree that Darkseid was a lot more intimidating when he was more hands-off. We brought up that same idea in the Summer Sampler. That's right, Chris. Remember, folks, the Fire and Water Podcast Summer Sampler included a JLI mini-episode with me and Chris talking about the Mr. 
Miracle special, including Darkseid. Uh, Chris goes on to say, Darkseid, being the bruiser final boss battle guy, is just a yawn fest now since it's been done so often. Darkseid had very few physical throwdowns in comics before the last few decades. The first one that really comes to mind is during the Morrison-Porter JLA era, and that one was set in a possible future. I think we can lay some of the inspiration for this on Bruce Timm and company on the DC Animated Universe shows. They built up three Superman big confrontations with Darkseid, like Cisco had mentioned, and each time they were thrilling, visceral slobber knockers. But we had multiple episodes where we saw Darkseid as the behind-the-scenes machinator, so it all worked beautifully. Now everyone wants to rush right to the Darkseid as a laser-beam-firing Hulk. Like a lot of creators who follow great works, they figure that these really cool wow moments were the exception, not the rule. And that's what made them unique. <sighs> Excellent point, Chris. Can't argue that with you. In fact, Max Traver follows it up because I agree so much with everything that Chris said about Darkseid here. Thank you for describing the most boring use of the character as his, quote, laser beam firing Hulk mode. Just perfectly put. I also dislike how Darkseid has gone the way of the thing over the years. He started out rather normal size, but now he's like nine and a half feet tall. I always found all the menace and power in the regular sized individual to be much more impressive. Then we heard from Michael Wagner. Last time, Siskoid talked about the invasion, the research he had done prior to the podcast and searching for all the crossover episodes, and he talked about using Wikipedia. So Michael Wagner says, I've learned not to use Wikipedia to get storyline and crossover lists. Look for binding maps or reading order. Plenty of sites will come up with geeky, minute details of crossovers and tie-ins. Hmm, good point, Michael. Thank you. Then we heard from David Ace Gutierrez, the executive producer of Pod Dylan and the owner and operator of the Katana Banana. David says, great episode, fellas. Agree with you both about your preferences for using Darkseid sparingly. Too much Darkseid minimizes the impact of his decisions. And yes, he does have a history of appearing in odd settings. In Shag's other favorite series, which I'm sure there's already a show coming soon for, Darkseid appeared in a coffee shop in Sovereign 7 wearing a trench coat and a fedora. He was even sipping a cappuccino. <laughs> uh, David, while it's not my favorite series, I do think I own the whole thing. Then we heard from Jeff R., and he mentions the Black Orchid house ad that we talked about last time. We were trying to figure out who the artist was, because the signature was did not appear to be Dave McKean's. Obviously, that has been resolved now, thanks to Paul. But Jeff says, I absolutely call that a Dave McKean drawing if it weren't for that presumed signature. And after doing a Google image search for samples of his signature, I've got to say that could plausibly be one. No close matches, but a lot of variation and a few that look like K-A-Y at the end. You know what, Jeff? You were absolutely right. It did turn out to be a Dave McKean drawing. I also want to add that Darkseid is a long buildup that won't pay off for the post-crisis DC universe for a long, long time. Legends put him in the game, but that reads like the opening moves in a bigger plan. Then we have stories like this one, the Suicide Squad one, and Superman's earliest visits to New Genesis and Apocalypse are all ones where Darkseid is detached and disinterested, since they're not part of his plan. Even in Cosmic Odyssey, Darkseid is in a reactive mode. The next time we see Darkseid actually executing a plan and driving a story, it's in the dumb, toyetic, and only borderline and continuity superpowers miniseries. We don't see a Darkseid-driven story worthy of the build-up for decades until Rock of Ages. And for all the things the New 52 did wrong, it absolutely found the right way to position Darkseid as a DC Universe-scale threat. Hmm. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Then Paul and KC wrote in to say, I thought Giffen did a good job with Darkseid and the Legion of Superheroes five year later's Quiet Darkness. I'm surprised it wasn't mentioned. Well, Cisco comes in to defend himself and says, That was a thousand years in the future, man. It hasn't happened yet. And in fairness, I did mention Darkseid's connection to the Legion and called it just another margin or bubble, like the fourth world. Fair enough, Cisco. Then we heard from my buddy Mark Baker Wright from Black Rock's Toy Box. Mark writes, Interesting bit of background on those gap months in the DC history. Marvel apparently did something similar in the following year. But instead of a couple of months with no dates on their covers, they had a couple of months with cover dates that gave the appearance of a bi-weekly title. Like I would say November and then mid-November, for example, despite the fact that the issue still only came out once a month. At least that's how it happened in late 1989 with the Transformers comic, the only Marvel title I ever picked up regularly. Somehow I figured Mark was going to work a Transformers reference into that. <laughs> 
Then I uh, heard from Paul Hicks, who's apparently some guy from our Australian embassy. He says, good guest, but I think you could have done better. Well, Paul, I think we can all agree and say that about this month's episode. Then we heard from Jimmy McGlinchey from the Irish Embassy, and uh, I love Jimmy's gags. This is great. Here we go. He says, hello, Irish Embassy here, and boom. Oh, for the love of. And he picks up a telephone and says, hello, is this Apocalypse? Who am I speaking to? Oh, Vermin. Hi, how's it going? Listen, Darkseid is after booming in some more people from Apocalypse to the JLI Irish Embassy. Yes, I know it's the best way to get rid of people that are not worthy of his attention, but the neighbors are complaining every time the boom tube is open, and I honestly don't think my insurance covers damage caused by boom tube. Could you ask Darkseid to maybe at least alternate to different guests? I know for a fact that Ward Hill Terry's place has plenty of room to take a boom tube or two. While Martin Gray is in Scotland, and there's no one who would get upset if there was a boom tube suddenly appearing there. You'll say that to Darkseid for me? Thanks, Vermin. You're a star. Say hi to Kanto for me. Bye! Anyway, where was I? <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. You always crack me up. Uh, Jimmy goes on to say, It's nice to see Darkseid as a schemer rather than being the physical brute he's been portrayed in recent appearances in the DCU. One appearance I remember well was in the Eclipso series where Eclipso and Darkseid engage in a chess match and exchange stories. The tagline for Cosmic Odyssey had the right portrayal of Darkseid with his tagline of, Darkseid has a plan. Hmm, bit like a Cylon. Hmm. Then he goes on to say, I agree with Shang that what Captain Adam was referring to in the last page was the disappearance of the JLI as per the last issue, rather than the foreshadowing of the invasion storyline. I think the proximity of the tagline at the end probably made some people infer that that's what it was referring to invasion. Ah, thank you, Jimmy. Speaking some sense there. Excellent. Uh, then we heard from my buddy Bradley Null. He goes, Black Orchid! That is where I discovered Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean. Yeah, if you push me, I'll claim that's where my love for Vertigo comes from. If not for that series, I would have not given Sandman the second chance. Yeah, I know it predates Vertigo up by a lot, but my love of this style starts with Black Orchid. That's fantastic, Bradley. Then we heard from my good buddy Tim Price, who wrote a extra-long comment this month, so thank you so much for that, Tim. I can't tell you how much it means to me. It's been super helpful this week because my daughter just started back at school, and I've been reading it to her at night, and it's really helping her go to sleep. So thank you very much. Tim writes, Lobo, Mangacon in the Cluster, Apocalypse and his new gods, and the JLI. The slow burn has been building to the only thing it could be, a full-issue free-for-all slugfest. Completely atypical for the comic it's become, and somehow so perfect, because it was hilarious. What should be a desperate fight for survival, like Suicide Squad's version, instead is almost a farce of ultra-violence. When in doubt, fight! (laughs) That's a really good observation, Tim. Tim goes on to say, So Scott Free was captured in the middle of the spring semester of college, and this issue came out just as the fall semester had started. Dang. Between that and the Mr. Miracle series coming out, I think this marked the beginning of Scott fading out of JLI. In my memory, his appearances are as sporadic as Batman's by the time the invasion is done. That really makes me sad. You know, Tim, that makes me sad, too. Then he says, So many awesome faces and expressions by Ty Templeton this issue. He definitely made the JLI book his own. Wonderful stuff. Yes, it, he absolutely did, and I'm looking forward to getting back to some Templeton issues pretty soon. And he says, I've always read Captain Adam's panic at the end to be just about the JLI missing and not as an invasion prelude. Mostly because he's not that panicked. He doesn't try that hard to stop the team from wandering off, let alone being willing to joke about putting Nort on the phone with Reagan, which would have been hysterical. But I will concede that the UN Security Council is in special session. Sounds like more than the concern for the missing heroes. I'm not swayed, but it is interesting. Thank you, Tim. We appreciate that. Then we heard from Adam Ackerman, who goes by Centaurin from the Denmark Embassy, and he, he left us another haiku. I love these things. He goes, fourth world battle scene. Decided over a cuppa. You're all free to leave. 
Very nice. Thank you, Adam. And then he says, by the by, we do know that the last part with Captain Adam was directly referencing Invasion because of the first panel in the next issue in number 22. And he's referring to the first page that Paul and I covered earlier this one. I got to argue with you, Adam, because while that first page obviously is a reference to Invasion, I don't know that that's necessarily an indicator that that's what Captain Adam was talking about. Uh, I think that, you know, they had a month to write a script and then the next month they wrote a different script and Giffen's working on Invasion. So I, I don't know that that's concrete evidence. Then we heard from Nicholas Allhelm. He says, this issue was the first JLI issue I bought and really the first Justice League book of any kind I picked up. I knew a few characters from random who's who issues around the time, but I'm betting the appearance of Darkseid cemented the purchase for me. I was a huge Superpowers fan, so this seemed superb to me. My young mind had no problem picking up Midstream. Awesome, Nicholas. Then just the last couple of quick comments. Trent Lewis says uh, that the podcast is always a joy. Thank you, Trent. We appreciate that. And someone just identified as Brian sent us an email saying, I just started the JLI podcast series and I'm loving it so far. It's also my first time listening to a podcast. Wow, Brian, I am completely flattered that this is the first podcast you've ever listened to. Thank you so much. Please continue to write in. We want to hear from you. All right, folks, now I want to say a special thank you to everyone that helped promote this show on their social media timelines. Talking about Facebook and Twitter, I know, folks, it's a long list of names. However, these are the folks that showed their support and promoted the show. They got out there and did hit share or they hit retweet. And so it's important to me to recognize these individuals because our community is growing, folks. This time out, we're looking over 80 names of folks that helped promote just last episode. Wow, I am overwhelmed. Thank you so much, folks. All right, my thanks go out to BGSU Batman Conference, Bill Beer. BoldOutlaw.com, Boosterific.com, Calum Nauer, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, Cosmic Cat Comics, Dale Russell, David Bayer Jr., DC Comics 88, DC in the 80s, Debbie Rangel, Dr. Ange, Dr. Jennifer Schwartz-Levine, Frederico Hernandez, Jeff Messer in the Geek Brain Popcast, Generation X-Wing, Grover Welch. Aaron Head Moss and his accounts with Head Speaks, Headcast Network, G.I. Joe, a real American headcast, Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, and Task Force X. History of Comics on Film, Jack Roca, Jared West, Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, Jason Pope, Jay Powers, Jeffrey Brown, Jeremiah Parker, Jonathan Brown, Justice's First Dawn, Connell, Crackathoom Podcast, Christados, Laurel and Mountainflower One, Legion Bloggers, Longbox Crusade, Longbox of Darkness, Lost in Time, Luke Dobb, Mark Baker Wright, Mark Lax, Mark Holmes, Martin Kogan, Matches Bologna, Matthew Cody, Max Romero and his It's Plastic Man and the Mirror Factory, Mickey Flash, Mr. Welch's Geek Page, My Secret Origin, Nerd Perfect Strangers, Not Guano Man, Ollie Queen, Paul Hicks and his DC OCD podcast, Paul Klein, Professor Frenzy, Randy Caldwell, Relatively Geeky, Rod Pruitt, Scott X, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Ciscoid, Superman Movie Minute Podcast, Superoli, The 108th Sage, Vishnu Ganon, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Weasel Skull, Willie Yalbro, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Zoom Yukonori. Ugh, my thanks to all you folks for your support of the JLI Podcast. Thank you so very much for helping to get the word out there. And your feedback on each episode is such a critical part of the show, folks. We couldn't do it without you. And this community of JLI fans is the best. Thank you so very much. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It's probably Siskoid's fault. So, just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you on the next episode. And please keep those cards and letters coming. You can go to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave comments on the show post there. 
course, Facebook, you can hit us up at Justice League International Blah Ha Ha Podcast. On Twitter, it's JLI Podcast. Or you can email us at jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Siskoid for helping me cover JLI number 21. And thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback from that episode. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we'll see how Paul's office fared through the alien invasion of Australia. November 4th, 1988, Earth is invaded by an alien alliance composed of several species, including the Dominators, the Kunz, the Danegarians, and the Durlins, and they want our superheroes. Even though Australia has been decimated, the United Nations response is unequivocal. Drop dead. First Strike, the Invasion Podcast, takes you back to that moment in time and covers the entire Invasion DC Comics crossover, issue by issue. Tie-in by tie-in. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes. First Strike, the Invasion Podcast. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Melbourne. In the annals of television history, there are TV shows and characters that changed our culture and helped define generations. These are not those shows. It's time to close up the bar, leave the war, and quit your yuppie whining so you can step on board the Enterprise D, run alongside the Hoff, stop time with your fingers, and introduce your family to the voice input child identikit. Because this summer, Pop Culture Affidavit is taking you to the depths of 80s and 90s television with It Came From Syndication! For seven weeks, I'll be taking a look at a variety of syndicated TV genres, from the lauded science fiction of Star Trek The Next Generation to the... This was a show? Of small wonder. Along the way, we'll battle with the Thundercats, run through the funhouse, give thumbs up at the movies, and have a very current affair. Pop Culture Affidavit presents... It Came From Syndication! Coming July 11th, to popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. Alright folks, we are back from break, and yes, it does appear Paul is back from my flimsy excuse. Paul, how's the Australian Embassy look? Tomorrow's Monday. Are you going to be able to go to work tomorrow? Unfortunately, the office is still standing, so and all the computers are still working. So yes, I will be at work tomorrow. Thank you very much. I'm terribly sorry. Terribly sorry. Well folks, my thanks, and I sort of mean it, to Paul for appearing on this episode of the show. I've been waiting for a long time to spend some time and hang out with my buddy Paul. And it's, it's weird, you know, in the podcasting world, you listen to other podcasts, and you communicate 
communicate via social media and you feel like you get to know people or maybe you guys feel like you get to know me and I promise you, you don't because this is a facade. I'm really just a creepy, creepy, creepy dude. Anyway, um, and so when you, when you finally talk to some of these people, it's like, wow, I feel like we've spoken so many times before. It's there's like a level of comfort and it's nice to, you know, Paul has lived up to uh, his legend, if you if we will. Aww, so thank you. Shag, I just want to say you're a really funny guy, like visually. Um, but <laughs> Yeah, no, but it's it's been a pleasure and a long time coming. I mean, I think I put my hand up for the show before the show even came out. And, you know, once you'd given it out to all your friends and the people you like, you know, then you had some spots left. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I had been wanting to record with you even before the channel I was around when uh, we would always go back and forth about waiting for Doom. You kind enough oh. to listen to our shows because clearly you have nothing better to do with time. So, obviously. Yeah. But, I mean, it's great to be on the show and uh, particularly because it's an event and, uh, you know, as uh, events have become fairly important to me, like my podcasting career at this point so just saying invasion could have been ranked a little bit higher but anyway thank you paul so much for being here and again sincerely appreciate it and why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you on the interwebs you can find me in your computer <laughs> i'm reading underscore hicks on twitter that twitter is where i'm at my best i mean i i think you're a facebook guy i'm a twitter guy yeah hate twitter yeah twitter's where the smart people uh, work it out but and, uh, and the and the nazis but okay <laughs> So you can find you on Twitter. Do you do any podcasting, perhaps? Um, oh, funny you should mention that. I do a podcast called Waiting for Doom, which is about the Doom Patrol, uh, where we are waiting for the Doom Patrol to... Well, I mean, is it coming back? We don't know. We think it is. It's meant to be more issues. Who knows? But when we started the show, there was no Doom Patrol comic, as you pointed out, and it came along, and now there's a TV show coming. So, And uh, I hope that's good, because uh, <laughs> I don't want to be associated so heavily with something that's really bad. I can't wait for but, the line where you see a robot man turn to the camera and say, say F the chief. <laughs> yeah. The other show I do is DC OCD, which is about or DC events, and we cover every single DC event, including ones like Cosmic Odyssey, which may not should have been on the list, but uh, that, it's our show. We do what we want. Um, and we are currently in the mid-90s, so I think by the time this show comes out, you would have heard our episode on Underworld Unleashed, so 1995. Okay. So look out for that one. You can disagree with my score on that one soon. We're all really looking forward to your coverage of Amazon's Attack and Joker's Last Life. <laughs> well, don't forget Genesis. We've got right. that to come as well. And uh, I think technically Salvation Run is on the list as well. So there's, there's redeeming qualities of that one, at least. Yeah, it ended. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I think that's it. Yeah. Uh, plus, I'm Australian, if no one's mentioned that. I hadn't realized it. Didn't even notice it. And that's a fair dinkum. Thanks for sharing. So, folks, all right. Come back next month when we're going to cover Justice League International number 23. And we'll have another guest host to cover the issue with me. Who will it be? Come on. People, you've been listening to this thing for ages. You know how this works. You're just going to have to wait till next month. Thanks for listening. Listening, folks. Until next time, I'm Shag. I'm Paul. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make, make something, something of it? it?